Hi, my name is Eric. And I'm Shalila. And this is Are You Still Watching? A podcast about movies and their place in our culture. So today, Shalila, we are going to talk about uh, X-Men and cannolis, uh, which I don't know what a cannoli is. Can we start at the top? What is a cannoli? I don't actually know that. You don't know what a cannoli is? Oh, no. but you have a very in-depth understanding of why it's called that, which is impressive. That is true. Is it a pastry or is it a savory dish? It is a sweet dish. It is not a savory oh. dish. They are wow. a long tube of hardened dough that contains cheesy, sweet stuff. That's all I really know about. But they're Italian. I had them in Italy. Oh, wow. Oh, look at that humble brag. Okay. The point is, this is the one bad time to brag about it because I was there like 30 <laughs> days before it belonged. Right. So, yeah. Well, I- <laughs> for my research for this episode, I did not research what a cannoli is. So terrible entrance, but it is a good segue <laughs> into revealing what we were talking about today, which is the X-Men film franchise, uh, which we are talking about because... We, once upon a time, planned on doing something like this in preparation for The New Mutants. Yep. Which is a movie that has been releasing for years now Mm -hmm. and has never successfully accomplished its mission of releasing. But it sure wanted to for years. That was its plan. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember seeing the, the trailers? I remember a long time ago seeing the trailers. That's what I mean. Like, I don't mean the recent ones. I mean, like, the original... For those who don't know what I'm talking about, there's a film that was supposed to come out many years ago called The New Mutants, which was the next film in the X-Men franchise. And I believe it was going to be like their 2000s one, since they just did their 90s and their 80s and everything else. And it was going to have Maisie Williams and a bunch of other people in it. And it was going to be dark, kind of like a horror movie. Uh, and there was trailers and everything, like for sure. I, I, I get afraid of like Berenstein, Berenstein bear situations, but this one is real. And then it just never happened and it kept never happening. And then they finally set a date and we're real. And they're like, we're going to really do it this time. And that time is going to be early summer, 2020. And then COVID wasn't a fan of the X-Men franchise. So it just didn't happen. Yeah. It was a direct attack. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're talking about today. We are talking about the X-Men film franchise and the weird order that we watched it in, which is called the Cannoli Order. Uh, so why don't you break it down really quick? What What is the order that we watched it in? Yeah, of course. So the basic concept behind the Cannoli Order is that we're going to visit one X-Men timeline first and then the other, as opposed to the way it actually released, which is that these timelines kind of crossed over in the shape of an X, if you will. Ooh. Mm-hmm. We should just say this right at the top. We're straight up spoiling all of these movies, uh, and it's good that we are. I mean, we're just kind of assuming that you want that, slash have seen them already, slash have forgotten, slash don't care. And we're probably honestly doing you a favor by just telling you what happened rather than you having to experience it through the mess that it was in parts. Okay, here is the order that we did our intense X-Men-a-thon in. So X-Men First Class, 2011, then X-Men Origins Wolverine, then X-Men, X2, and X-Men The Last Stand, which are kind of the original trilogy in quotes, X, X2, X3. Then The Wolverine, which is his second standalone film. Then X-Men Days of Future Past, which throws the wrench in and disrupts the timelines. And then we go forward from there into what is technically the other timeline. So we've got X-Men Apocalypse, Dark Phoenix, Deadpool, 
Logan, and Deadpool 2. So that's our 12 movie order, the cannoli order. And I just want to warn everybody that the amount that which this matters is very small. Yeah. Which is to say, like, it, it works as long as you want it to work. But if you feel like it doesn't work, you sure are right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's okay. <laughs> uh, the suspension of disbelief that has to happen regardless to watch any of these movies is high, so... I think I I do think it's actually one of the things that interests me about this. So for a little bit of background on like why we're doing this other than the new mutants angle is that Shalila said she was going to <laughs> and I thought, well, hot dog, I'll do it too, because I've never turned down a good movie marathon. And they tell me I have no leadership qualities. I know. Look at you, a modern Joan of Arc. So basically, the the thing that sort of interests me about this is that like, obviously, the past, what, 11 years, 12 years now of uh sort of like blockbuster filmdom has been dominated by Marvel Cinematic Universe, which for those who are confused, maybe we should cover that too. This is not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is based on characters from the Marvel Comics. It is produced by Marvel Entertainment, both of which were companies that were not owned by Disney until they were. And now because Disney has bought Fox, it's all owned by Disney. Just know that when we talk about X-Men, we are not talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which in better language is like none of the Avengers stuff completely separate. Uh, this is going to get more confusing when they share a character, uh, but that's okay. The The basic point I'm trying to make here is that I find it interesting that the MCU has sort of rewritten what people think of as a larger connected narrative, and it ha- I think it has largely rewritten what people think of as the norm and what should be. So it is essentially created this idea, which is sort of an illusion, that big franchises like this are meant to be interconnected, that they actually are one giant story that is being told, and it's a it's a clean puzzle, and that it should fit together and make this beautiful picture by the end of it, and at the end of Endgame, you should feel like the past 23 films of Marvel have all built to this moment, and they've all together added some little component that has painted this bigger picture, and I think you can see the effects of that in things like Star Wars where it's sort of bled over a little bit and people have sort of made it need to be like that. Uh, And that's why this is interesting to me because X-Men just couldn't care less. Like it does it, but it doesn't care that it's messy at all. It truly doesn't. In fact, it actively seeks to make it messier with the aforementioned film, The Days of Future Past, which is a fascinating, weird little film. Uh, It's, I don't know. That was just the thing that really drew me to it is when you wanted to do the marathon and you told me about the cannoli order, which I had never heard of. That was just the first kind of thought I had was like having recently watched all of the Marvel films in, in chronological order, according to their canon too. It's just different. Yeah. Like they, theirs is really loose. Theirs isn't even as well connected as X-Men's is, but it's also cleaner. It, the X-Men is just so uninterested in it and they're more interested in telling a thematic cohesive narrative than they are in telling a plot cohesive narrative. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting. Their characters are the same. Their themes are the same. While MCU is the plot is what sort of matters above all. So I don't know. It was just, that was very interesting to me. Yeah. I'm glad you did it. Yeah. I'm glad you drug me into this. And by drug, I mean... You said, I'm going to do it, and then I said, I'll do yeah, it. Yeah, it was entirely voluntary um, on both of our really parts. Was. I don't know why we both did this. But the sacrifices we make, I think you should become a patron. Oh, look at that plug. You've been really killing it. You've been you've been taking the wheel on those lately. I like that. Thank you very much. I think by the end of these two episodes, everyone will be inspired to do so mm-hmm. uh, with the amount of research and, and goodwill we've put toward them. Absolutely. Uh, so just as a quick note as well, the reason that this is called the cannoli order as we've just described, is apparently because it is similar to a food called the cannoli, which I'm not aware of. But the bigger picture here, or sort of like the meta-narrative, is the same guy who made this up in a blog post also made up something called the spaghetti order, 
which is his order that he suggests watching the MCU movies, uh, all the Avengers films, basically. Um, and as a personal side note, I don't like that order very much. I know that maybe that's a hot take. I don't mean to attack the man who made this, whose name I don't know. But um, he does it based on the end credits, and I just don't think it works. But that's just me. However, they're both plays on the more famous machete order, which is the order in which this guy claims that you need to watch the Star Wars movies in order to really fully appreciate them. All of them fit into this same basic trend that, that I think is sort of ironic since it's also we're currently talking about that need for a connected narrative. This trend of trying to make film franchises that spawn many decades fit together as though they're one story. And this sort of like attempt to say, if you take these movies and if you watch them in an order that is different than they released, you will appreciate it more. Um, I don't think that's always true, but it is a very interesting way to do it. And I do appreciate the attempt. It's, it's just kind of fun. It's a fun exercise, I think. Yeah. Um, in, in just sort of creativity. What I've taken away from this is two things. Number one, if you name an order for a movie franchise, you have to, it has to be three syllables and end in E. Yeah, and number really two, true. the X-Men has a really messy timeline and it required somebody sitting down and putting it in order. So get ready for that. Yeah. So today's episode, I guess we should, we should sort of mention that this is going to be our first two-parter. Yeah. That's exciting. So this is our first two-part episode. Uh, in the first half, which is today, we're going to be doing just an overview of the order in general. Uh, well, other than what Shulia just gave you, we're going to go through film by film and just sort of talk about them and what we liked about them and mostly didn't and <laughs> just sort of some of the strange things that come with it. And then in part two, we're going to be really diving into like kind of the series as a whole. Like what are the thematics of this weird series? Because I just want to start there. Like I cannot emphasize enough that this is a weird film so series. So weird. It is unlike anything that is being put on film right now otherwise. Like as far as big blockbusters sort of IP driven things, it is just so freaking weird. Yeah. And we want to talk about that. Like what are the themes? What is the story it's trying to tell? Does it actually tell a cohesive story by the end of it all, etc.? Yeah, there's many things that it was meant to be a stand-in for and then many things that it became a stand-in for and many ups and downs and we'll go through them all. Oh, yeah. we should talk about this. The traditional Marvel Cinematic Universe is now has the rights essentially to in the future do a proper reboot. Yes. So what yes, we're talking about is a closed door on the 21st Century Fox execution of the X-Men, as it were. So we can talk about what we hope for the future because it literally is going to happen. I think it would be also fun if we could talk about a lot. Of, there's a lot of canceled movies. Yes. Like there are a ton of films that were supposed to happen in this franchise and did not. Some of them are more famous than others. But frankly, like even they have their own weird, fascinating little history and the choices that they made, like who they picked, why they picked them, who was going to direct them are, again, it's just, it really exemplifies how freaking weird it all is. Um, in a way that, like, for those of you that have seen some of the MCU movies that are, let's say, weirder, like Doctor Strange, that movie is not weird. Like, I know it seems weird because it's about a doctor magician sorcerer who bends time and also, uh, what's-her-face has a bald head, but that it's just not, like, it's not the same type of thing. No. Uh, it's just those are pretty normal movies for the scope of things yeah. so but yeah we'll we'll get to all that uh in a bit but for now let's kick it off and talk about uh x-men first class yeah let's do it so x-men first class actually a movie that came out in 2011 but the first movie we watched and in my opinion 
a really, really great opener for a marathon like this. Yeah, it's really, it's a stronger opener than I thought it was going to be. Maybe we should give just a little bit of personal history with this franchise too. Yeah. Like I, these movies were deeply important to one segment of my family when I was a child. And I don't really know why, but they were like, the other half of my family did not watch these movies ever. And they have no connection to them and they just don't care. Um, but the the half that did, it was like, these were constant rewatches. We probably watched these films multiple times a year. We went and saw them in theaters. For whatever reason, these were just our movies. So, you know, the, just the whole idea of them were very important. These were characters that were very consistent in my very young life. And then First Class, by the time that came around, that was kind of like when all that was exiting. Like, mm-hmm. I, it, to me, when that came out, I was kind of like, well, I don't want them to reboot it. Like, I don't, you know, these aren't the same characters, etc. And I was kind of like down on the idea as a whole. So it was really fun to come back and watch this one pretending it's the first time I'd ever seen any of it, right? Like, this is where it starts. And doing so was actually really fun, and it worked. It's a good starting point. Yeah, I'm glad. In terms of personal history, I have none. And I just, that's really my entire history with this franchise. I'd actually seen half the movies, six or seven of the 12, but kind of inadvertently, right? The kind, the way that you went to the theaters to see Deadpool, sure. But I wasn't able to place any of them within any context. Right. And you're not like following them. You just happen to see them. Exactly. So it yeah, was it was I a lot you. nicer to, to follow them in whatever sense you can. Yeah, so this was a really fun movie. I had extremely seen it before, which I was very surprised by. So we should probably talk about the fact that they're, this is a superhero franchise. There are a bunch of mutant characters. The whole point is at some point evolution happens and a bunch of genes eventually <laughs> just mutate to, for reasons. And people were born with powers. And most of this, most of it happened in the 20th century. 20th century, yeah. Due to, this film explains because of the nuclear age. Yes. Okay, yes. There there we go. Yeah. It like accelerated it essentially. Yeah. Um, so people were born with abilities and there's a couple of characters who try to kind of lead them at different points in time. And that's, and obviously the whole people born with abilities is a metaphor for many things. And yeah. their place in society obviously is the main thing. I also think we should note that, like, when we say people born with abilities, try not to imagine... Like, we're going to explain some of them, obviously, but as a general rule, don't think of it as the MCU or, like, any of the DC movies. Like, when we talk about people born with abilities, it's not like, oh, I was born Superman. Most of the people we're talking about, like, the ones that make up, let's say, the background of any screen, they're not cool. Like, when we say people born with abilities, we mean, like, here's a kid that has a lizard tongue. And here's a kid that's skin is kind of weird looking. Yeah. Like it's it's what we say like mutations. A lot of them are literally just weirdo things. Like my personal favorite is the kid in X2 who can change the TV by blinking his eyes. <laughs> that's just such a funny like that's his entire mutation is he can change the TV channel. Like that's what we're talking about. So it's not like these aren't gods among men yeah. for most of them. These are not superheroes really. Um, they sort of self-acknowledge that, that that name gets dropped on them sometimes but they they don't really feel it. These are mostly just people who are kind of weird. And then, of course, the X-Men are sort of like the more useful of them. Yeah. Because it's hard to put together a super team with lizard guy uh, and a girl who falls through walls and so stuff. So they like, try. Instead, you have... Yeah, instead you have actually like good powers, like I can regenerate or I control weather or I shoot laser beams out of my eyeballs. But again, none of them, I guess barring maybe three, none of them are really like super powered in the way that I think most people are used to now for Marvel. Yeah. Like none of, you know, nobody's going toe to toe with Thor. Like that's not the idea here. It's, it's more just, I'm a little bit better of a human 
than most people And are. because of my, I don't know, personal experiences or the way my mutation has caused me to experience time, I have some kind of interest in representing mutant kind. That ends up being yep. the thing. Um, yep. So yeah, they're all they're all weird to the point where they have to go to a special school because their parents often don't really want to yep. deal with them, uh, which is, woo, isn't that a metaphor? <laughs> so yeah, this will come up. In case you know like nothing about this, but if you've seen like posters or whatever, the, the guy who runs the school is Charles Xavier. You might have heard his name. He's played by Patrick Stewart in the part of the timeline when people are older. And then he's played by James McAvoy when they're all younger. And these movies keep jumping back and forth between the older casts, the younger casts, and his and the oftentimes villain, but also kind of sort of friend in quotes of Charles Xavier is um, Eric Lenscher or Magneto, which is um, Michael Fassbender when he's young and Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen should have said Sir both times when he's <laughs> older. And then there's just a sordid X-Men. You've probably seen like Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique or the, the blue girl who can change appearance, etc, etc. So that's the general vibe. And of course, vibe. probably the face of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Our good Australian friend, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Yep. Yeah, so First Class opens it all up. Uh, and introduces us to Xavier and Eric, who is uh, important. He is a Holocaust survivor, um, and that is pretty relevant in a good portion of these movies and then gets ignored later on for reasons I don't really understand. Um, (laughs) But it introduces us to sort of the main crew of characters um, in at least the younger franchise, but I guess also technically the older franchise, uh, it effectively introduces us to the main two, which are always going to be uh, are always going to be Professor X and Magneto. Like those are the two you're going to hear us talk about probably the most. The whole series really does revolve around them to some varying degree. And funnily enough, this movie has literally has uh, Hugh Jackman in it for seven seconds, yeah. ten seconds, maybe. Great, um, and a very good cameo, but it does nothing to introduce us to his character. So I guess we'll ignore him for now. But the basic premise of First Class is uh, mutants are coming out and about more because of the atomic age. And because of that, um, there is conflict happening, obviously. There are good mutants. There are bad mutants, as there are good and bad people. And uh, newly doctored, Mm -hmm. I'm going to use that as the right way, newly degreed, uh, Professor X is, uh, well, he's not Professor X yet. He's just Charles Xavier, British guy. James McAvoy, um, they basically need to help kind of set up the idea of the rest of the X-Men movies, which is that they're sort of like trying to set up the idea of mutants having a place in society in an open way. Mm-hmm. So they've existed in secret for a very long time, but this movie is very much about the first class, pause for effect, mm-hmm. of mutants who are uh, going to sort of live out in the open and actively help the U.S. government, uh, which is important, it's always the U.S. government, to do stuff. Yeah, these films are extremely America. They really are they in a weird way. Else. Yeah, which is weird because they obviously could. Yeah. Like, like, these movies should be more international than they are. Like, even just, it's so weird. Anyway, that's first class. (laughs) Yeah. One of my favorite things about this movie, like you said, about how this franchise will always or has at least always revolved around Professor X and Magneto is this is the perfect movie to contrast their childhoods. Like the the movie kind of contrasts um, 
Eric or Magneto growing up as a Holocaust survivor and his parents dying and all of an extreme darkness of the way he was tortured for his powers and all that kind of stuff. And then just uh, Professor X is this like extremely rich, spoiled British kid who goes to Oxford and basically has this lovely privileged existence. And the whole series kind of revolves around how they both are trying to do what they think is best for their kind, but that manifests itself in very opposite ways. So Professor X is always just like, how can we be the best that we can? How can we rise above? And Magneto is always, we have been so wronged, we need to fight back. And you understand perfectly yeah. in this movie how their childhoods lead them through that those two different perspectives the whole time. So I love that. Yeah. Uh, these movies also, this movie was obviously the first one in the new franchise, uh, which consists of four films that are about their younger selves, as we said before. And this is the movie that really sets up Jennifer Lawrence's uh, mystique. Uh, her, I don't know, her non-mutant name, I guess, is Raven. It sets her up as being a main character, which she was not in the original films. Uh, so it's probably a weird shift if you're watching these for the first time. Uh, because she is so heavily made out to be like a very important main character. And she very much is in the, the, the four sort of prequel films. Um, but, uh, yeah, she, I would say she's also definitely the third lead of that movie. Yeah. Um, which definitely feels yeah. like something and that the studio probably forced on them, right? They were probably like, here's an A-list actor or sort of, um, run with it. And I'm sure she was happy at the beginning to do it too, but it was a little. I, weird. I'm actually going to ask you about that because you have a you have a better memory of sort of these timelines than I do. But this was right around the time when Hunger Games came out, right? Yes. The first one. Yes. So what I think is interesting about this is that it kind of feels like Jennifer Lawrence or her agent or whatever you want to say. I kind of feel like they they were sort of betting on two different horses, right? Like. Most people, when they start out, I don't think they take two big franchises as a lead. And she really did start out by basically saying, like, I'm, I'm going to carry both of these. Here I am. Yeah. But my point is, I don't think she was an A-lister yet. I don't think, because I'm pretty sure those movies came out at the same time. The next year she did Silver Linings Playbook, I'm pretty sure. And I think that's what propelled her very oh. far forward. But that was, you're right, that was a you're year right, because after. that said, I'm, a, I'm an actress who can exist beyond blockbuster children's films right right she right, probably right. needed to and, do something yeah. yeah a little more grounded. for sure so i just i don't know it's so interesting to me that like you know the people in this movie are are big people like james mcavoy was not a small actor in 2011 uh wait when did this come out 2013 11 2011 that's what i thought he was not a small actor michael fassbender was not a small actor still like relatively newer in the scope of american film mm-hmm. but not small and then jennifer lawrence like it's just i, I find that really interesting but uh, it also has Kevin Bacon yes. as the main villain. He's great. January Jones, um, Zoe Kravitz. Oh, There's she's a lot of interesting people in this movie. so beautiful. I had no idea that was her. I really, like, my my image of her in my head is from Big Little Lies. Mm-hmm. So to see her in this movie as such a different looking person, I was like, what is, th- who is this? Yeah, like- I mean, she's a, she's genuinely one of the most beautiful people on earth, but she also has really developed a bone structure over time. So she looks, she kind of has like a chubby, cute baby <laughs> face in this movie. I mean, she's also yes, literally yes, very yes, young, yes, yes. but it, it does make sense. Like when you look at her in this movie, you're like, oh, who is that? She's beautiful, but she looks different. Uh, yeah. And also Lucas Till from the um, Hannah Montana movie or the Taylor yes. Swift You Belong With Me video. The two only ways I will ever remember him. 
The two only ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the brother from Get Out. Yes. Caleb Landry something. Jones? Smith? Caleb Landry He's Jones. one of those white names. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It is it is an interesting collection of people, for sure. Like a very eclectic cast, a very weird plot that basically revolves around them needing to stop the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, it's just a weird blockbuster. Yeah, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just one of those things like when you watch it, you realize that this is different. Like yeah. it's just a different tone than the Marvel movies. It's a different kind of, it's not as dark as the DC movies, but it's not as whimsical as the, it's just something different. And it kind of likes being weird. Yeah. So it's, I mean, the whole X-Men kind of metaphor has always been about the human mutant relationship and the fact that this movie takes place during the civil rights movement and all of the very obvious on the nose gender inequality and bigotry that happens in this movie it's it's definitely it's not like it's pretty ham-fisted but it fits right in and that's fine you know it's not the it's not a great uh subtle metaphor or exploration or anything but i don't even think they wanted it to be that so it's fine I think we can talk about this in the next episode more, but I, I was thinking about that when watching these is the the first two ever X-Men movies, I think were actually like, especially for the time, were fairly interesting thematic explorations of especially queer rights and the, the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And I think it's because uh, of America. the director and general uh, runner who shall not be named of this series who kind of yeah yeah wanted it to be that way. But yes, well, we'll get there. And it's it's just interesting to me because this movie, the the prequel movies have maybe the best. You know what? I, I'm gonna. I, it's because I have a can sitting next to me. But here's my analogy. Are you ready for this? So ready. X one and X two are like they're actually flavored things. You know, like like they actually have flavor. The the prequel films are the Lacroix of thematics mm, for the X Men universe. Yeah, they're like they they near flavor. Like they 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 have the they know the concept of lime and hibiscus but they don't actually contain any degree of it yeah they're just sort of they flirt with the idea of having it but yes. they really don't have much going on yeah um which is sort of it's it's a weird jarring at least it was for me it was it was jarring to watch them in order again because you start out with this sort of bar being it's okay like it's i'm not saying they're bad movies it's just you start with like a, oh okay this is a modern blockbuster and then you get to x1 and 2 which came out in the early 2000s. And those movies are about something. And they want you to know it. They hit you in the face. They're with like, like ocean oh, okay, spray. Got it. <laughs> yeah, they're just, they yeah. will, yeah, gassy with their cranberry they flavor. No. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's X-Men First Class. Anything you want to want to touch on in this one? Any like highs or lows maybe? I don't really have anything. I think my only high is just their relationship is perfect. And that's, especially in the order we were watching this, it's just a great setup for who they are because they carry this entire franchise. Yeah. So it's just, I, I nothing else even stands out to me in this movie. I mean, everyone's great. They do their jobs well, but it's, it's a, the stars are um, Charles and Eric and how they, you know, how they meet and everything. It's great. Good job. <laughs> I'm going to name one high and one low that are directly related. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a character in this movie who is played by an actor who I do not know. And his character's name is Darwin. And when I first saw this movie as a younger person, it was like my favorite set of superpowers I'd ever seen. His entire thing is that his body essentially adapts to any given situation, like automatically. So if he sticks his head in water, he gets gills. If Someone tries to hit him with a bat. His skin automatically hardens like a, like, you know, a carapace. Um, he essentially just has the entirety of the animal kingdom at his disposal, but he doesn't even control it. It's just innate. That's my high. It's very cool. Very weird and very cool. My low 
is that he showcases that at once and then he, he dies. Dies. <laughs> like, I remember it's just, this. It is so unceremonious and it's just a weird thing to me where you sort of like kick off this franchise again and then immediately kill most of your characters. Yeah. Which just kind of leaves this feeling of like, well then why did we I gotta be honest, I've that. now seen this movie <laughs> twice and I just thought that his superpower was developing gills underwater. Because that's the only way no, he dis- no. displays it. I know they don't even actually explain it. They really don't. But that's what it is. Like it, 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 it's even. And I'm not like you know. I'm a little bit of a nerd. Like I know that from doing further research. But it's also in the. Um, I remember it being in like the DVD extras. Like there's stuff that's like you know they break down the characters or whatever. And that's Darwin's thing. Is they're like he has evolutionary adaptation, etc. But even even aside from that, like in this movie, you have Lucas Till, Zoe Kravitz. You have him. You have this like interesting eclectic group of of actors and of powers. And they mostly get rid of all of them by the next movie. There's only like four people that make it to the next movie. Yeah. Rose Byrne isn't even in the next movie. Like, <laughs> it's just weird to me that you start off a franchise and then you mostly get rid of every person you met in yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely bizarre. It's a weird thing to do. So, yeah. anyway, that's my high and low for X-Men First Class. Uh, my high is actually, I Go really appreciate this movie as a period movie. I think it's a great little vignette of its time. It does a good job. Time. The costumery in this one and the next one are really good. Yes, that's what it yeah. is. The, so the X-Men are kind of, their entire franchise is just them kind of wrestling with their ability to do or not do period movies. And they're all kind of trying to be period <laughs> movies of some kind. None of them are ever set in any semblance of where you live right now. So they're constantly trying to capture or re capture or invent something and to varying degrees of success and this is like this is high up for me they did pretty good (laughs) yeah that's a good point they really some of them are not good at it uh and this one is actually quite a good period piece Uh, i think it helps that january jones is in there yeah she's just just meant to be there yeah yeah it's those scenes with her and michael fassbender are weird because it it honestly looks like you plucked people out of a different era yeah those two look like they definitely should have been in a hitchcock film once upon a time (laughs) yeah um He's just so classically handsome and she is so classically beautiful that they they truly look like if you put them in black and white, you wouldn't know that you're like watching a modern movie. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's first class. So now we move on to the next film in this cannoli order, which is X-Men Origins, comma, no, colon. Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so if you don't mind, I'm going to give a little bit of background on this movie. Yes, please. Because this actually ties into the weird ill fate of many movies. So basically, this movie came after the original trilogy. This was the next movie made. It came out in 2009. That's mm-hmm. what my brain just that picked out correct. for me. I'm going to hope it's right. Oh, hell Good yeah. Job. So uh, it came out in 2009, and this was part of the plan at the time, which was that with the, the wrapping of the original trilogy, they were going to make a new trilogy called the Origins Trilogy. And it was going to be Origins Wolverine, Origins Magneto, Origins Professor X. And they were going to get back Ian McKellen, they were going to get back Patrick Stewart, and they were going to set up the the beginnings of all of this, not as a setup for any future thing. It was just like, hey, we can milk another uh, nine years out of this if we just get the three prequels, basically. And Origins was middling in both review and I believe box office. I don't think it did that well in the scope of things. Um, and that basically made them change course completely. And they ended up combining the scripts for Origins, Magneto, and Professor X. And that is how you get X-Men First Class. I didn't so know So it that. is basically the, the birth child of the failed experiment that was the Origins movies. It's also why this is the only movie that has this weird title. Like no other movie has this 
sudden X-Men Origins as like its its categorical title and then Wolverine. Yeah, I saw this movie in theaters with my best friend Jordan and my mother, and I remember it distinctly as being the first movie I I ever saw in my life. As I was watching it, I knew it wasn't good. Yeah, like that makes like in sense. a way that I would I would recognize now as an adult, where you're like, oh, oh, this isn't very good, is it? Yeah. Um, and I will say, uh, Shalila went to bat for it, and I watched it now for this order, probably for the third time in my life, and I got to admit, I enjoyed it a lot more this time around. I don't know if it's age. I don't know if it's that we've seen a lot of other bad movies, but the first two thirds of this movie, I'm not saying it's a perfect movie, but in the scope of like, uh, I'm, I'm going to use the words you gave me of sort of like 1980s-esque action mm-hmm. flicks. It's really not bad for the first two thirds. It's dumb. It's fun. And it's not bad at all. Yeah. And then the third act just, just falls it apart. Falls but so um, it's just one of those movies that like, if you want to watch an action movie where you suddenly have an interlude where they need to box or they need to play poker in order to accomplish a goal, this is that type of movie. Like where there's just these ridiculous events that happen and you just kind of buy into it because it's sort of just stupid fun. And that's it. It doesn't need to be anything else. It's not end of the world stakes. It's just sort of this silly action adventure. Um, that's Origins Wolverine. Yeah, I, that was my entire pitch. When I talked about doing this marathon, everyone who responded to me saying something other than why are you doing this said, why are you watching Origins? Because it's famously the worst one. Um, it's it's pretty bad. But that's what I'm saying. I'm saying my pitch is to watch it and pretend that it came out in the 80s and that it was the best superhero movie of its time. And then if you just pretend that's true, suddenly it's a great ride. It's just, I mean, it's still a bad movie, but it's yeah. It's just, you just go with it and then don't think about it too hard and it's kind it's of fine. Okay, I'm going to point out three weird people who are associated with this movie. Number one, since this is an origin movie, there's a flashback at the beginning of the movie to very young Wolverine. And that is played by Troy Savan, of all people. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Troy Savan, the YouTuber, pop star, etc., etc. He auditioned for this movie by sending in a videotape and going, I really want to play this character. And I think the filmmakers saw him perform at some mall or something. And they were like, fine, you know, why not? And he kind of does a good job considering he's not really an actor. It's it's fine. It doesn't stand out as weird. But that's just so interesting to me. And then in the the stream of weird casting, Will I Am is in this movie. Why did they go with Will I Am? from the the black eyed peas yes from the black eyed peas <laughs> they, they could have been anybody but he has a significant role in this movie he this is his first movie <laughs> this is his debut film and he had to do a whole is boot, it really yeah this is his first movie he he had to do a boot camp to get in <laughs> shape for it and then while filming a fight at the end of the movie he punched a camera and broke it and now he has a permanent scar on his knuckles like why was he there's just what? so much craziness about i know this is true <laughs> i didn't know that this these are the facts i walk around with in my head so that's why i am the way that i i am. I, I would actually love to do some research maybe i'll look into that for next episode of why they picked will i am i don't know it is just so bad i mean they i mean i don't know were they like going for jamie fox and he was busy so they were like okay who's another guy like know. it's bizarre but then also if you're like oh this movie has a really badly written plot and then you learn that David Benioff, who is one of the two mm-hmm, Game of Thrones mm-hmm, showrunners, mm-hmm. and famously the two people who single-handedly wrote season eight, co-wrote this, a lot suddenly falls in place. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's it's a weird set of people. There's a lot of people in this movie that I recognize and I don't, I can't name them. And like, I'm sure I looked them up, but I've already forgotten. Yeah. Um, there's just a really weird, oh, and well, 
of course, Ryan Reynolds is in oh, this. Oh, right, but we don't. We really can talk about that in a second. But um, it is just this weird collection of people that by the end of it, you're just kind of like, why? Why this collection? Who? You know, like what? What casting director decided this? Exactly. Group? Yeah. Uh, and it's not. I'm not really criticizing. It's just I'm really genuinely curious. Yeah, because like, I want to know credit, what the thought like, process. Jackman behind. and Liev Schreiber are great. They really are. Liev Schreiber plays a character called Sabretooth, which is his brother, and they are legitimately very good together. Um, they make a very good pairing, and I, I don't really know why that is. They just have this sort of. I, I think I really buy that they're brothers, like yeah. instantly. You're it's like, it's kind yeah. of their physique, though. To be honest, like you just kind of, yeah. Liev Schreiber is he's just such a specific guy. Like nobody can play the characters no. that he plays, and when he walks on screen, you're kind of instantly intimidated, even though he's a great person. Yep. And it's just that's the exact yep. kind of person you need to play this character. So, uh, yeah, good job. It's weird. Well, basically, the summation of this movie is uh, this is the origin movie about Wolverine. Where did he come from? Uh, where did he go? How did he become Cotton-Eyed Joe? Uh-huh. Yes. It is basically about his origins and where he got started, how he became Wolverine, and, and all of that sort of business that leads right up to the original X-Men film, which is next. Um, and to add to that, you also meet his first love, I guess maybe not his first, but at least one of them that you meet, who is played by an actress named Lynn Collins. And while watching this movie, I was trying to figure out how on earth I knew her, um, like what it was. She just seemed very familiar to me. And I finally realized it's because of a movie that I never saw. <laughs> it's just because <laughs> of trailers for it. The movie John Carter, oh. which is a very ill-fated Disney film and considered one of the biggest flops in Hollywood history. Her and the guy who plays John Carter are both in this movie. The guy who plays John Carter plays Gambit, and she is uh, Wolverine's girlfriend slash wife in this film. So um, it was just very weird to be like, why do I know this person? But only sort of. Uh, but anyway. That's so interesting. Yeah, the concept of why this might not be his first love is because Wolverine can heal, like he can self-heal himself. Yeah. So he's bas- he's not basically immortal, but he has lived through many, 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 many years. I think he's like canonically like 210 when he dies in the movies or something. Yep. So yeah, the point, yep. like the, the opening credits of this movie are like a war montage, actually a very strong part of the film. This very cool it's montage of him like yeah. fighting through the wars of time back to back with- In every war. Yeah, with Saber Tooth and his brother and just every yeah, yeah he's just, like literally a man who has seen it all and yes there's a really awful version of Deadpool in this movie yeah well we we, we have to mention this it, it just comes out of nowhere but so Ryan Reynolds is in this film as a character named Wade Wilson who later in this film is experimented on and turned into the weapon called Deadpool Ryan Reynolds also plays the character Wade Wilson and the character Deadpool in the later film called Deadpool mm-hmm. and they are not the same but they sort of acknowledge that, kind of. <laughs> um, the weirder thing to me, for all of you Blade fans out there, is that Ryan Reynolds plays essentially the exact same character in the Blade franchise, which is another Marvel franchise, by the way, uh, with Wesley Snipes in the lead mm-hmm. in the 90s. He plays a character in those movies who is a sword-wielding, constantly-talking ass. And he even dresses the same like, like, I swear to God, if you took a still from that movie and put it in Origins Wolverine, you'd think it's the same guy. And what I take away from this is that Ryan Reynolds deeply wanted to be in a superhero film. Like, he just really, truly wanted it. And Green he would, he'll do, he doesn't care. Yeah. Green Lantern. Yeah, he'll, he'll do anything. He doesn't care. He just wants to be in a superhero movie. And if he's given the opportunity, he will do it. So in this one, he is very famously uh, as Deadpool, but a very bad version of it. 
and uh, is very, very weird. Yeah, there's but a for joke the, the, in Deadpool the... where they pretend this never happened and they like kill him off. <laughs> yeah, and he has a figurine of it. He has like a little action yeah. <laughs> figure of his self from that movie. Uh, for the two minutes he's actually in it and speaking, he's very funny though. Yeah. Because he's Brian Reynolds. So. I mean, it's just, it's a tiny anyway, glimpse into what could have been and then what finally happened, which is great. But yeah. We'll get there. That's, that's X-Men Origins Wolverine. Nothing. It's an interesting little movie. It really is better than I remember, uh, for most of it, mm. but that's sort of a low well, bar. Yeah. Um, but it is fun. And if you want to see Will I Am teleport and you also want to see Gambit, uh, Ooh, yeah, in his we'll only film appearance, um, you can, so. Yeah, I mean, I still wouldn't recommend it. No, no, I wouldn't, but if you really want. So that film takes place in 1979, and the uh, X-Men First Class takes place in 65, I want to say. And these dates are actually important, I promise. Mm-hmm. So then we jump a lot of years. We jump to 1999, I'm fairly certain is when that takes yeah. place, um, to the original X-Men film, uh, which came out in the year 2000. So... The original X-Men film. I feel like we should talk a little bit about the history of it because it is, again, like, I don't think a lot of... Let me back up. Let me ask you a question. Do you agree that this franchise is sort of underseen among members of our generation? Yeah, for sure. I feel like people didn't really watch it. And they were very popular. So I don't know who was. I guess maybe older millennials and young Gen Xers. I'm not really sure. I have to say young Gen Xers are probably the biggest fans. Maybe, yeah. Because it, it, I really do feel like most of my my friends and my peers do not know these movies at all. And the only reason I do is, again, because my family was so strangely into them. Um, but these movies really did kick off what we know of today as superhero movies. Like, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, Blade basically made it clear that movies like this could make money in the mid-90s, that Marvel could make money. In a, in a time that was dominated by the Batman films with Michael Keaton and um, and George Clooney uh, and Val Kilmer. And this was the first Marvel one was Blade. And then X-Men came in 2000 and it just changed the game. Yeah. Um, and even though it took a decade essentially to get to the MCU, none of the middle of it exists. Like you don't get, you don't get Dark Knight really. You don't get uh, any of sort of the bad Marvel movies. And But it's still worth talking about. Like you don't get Daredevil. You don't get Ghost Rider. You don't get Fantastic Four. None of all of the weirdness that has come since exists without this strange little movie. Um, But this movie's been around forever. So the development of this movie started back in the 80s uh, with James Cameron and our dear friend from Star Wars and current head of Lucasfilm, Catherine Bigelow. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I just named her a friend on this podcast. We've never met, but (laughs) I assume we'd be friends. Um And it had all kinds of weird people attached to it. And it was basically, again, like in development for a long, long time. Uh, And the biggest problem was, of course, the budget. Because X-Men is famous for being a franchise that has a lot of characters who are all together at the same time. Because it's essentially a big teen drama. And they are all weird looking. And that all means it must cost money. Like, it's just not an easy... uh, This is also before, like, the widespread advent and use of heavy green screen and CGI. So... You just can't do it like you would do now, essentially. Yeah. Um, but uh, they finally did make it, and it finally did debut in 2000, and that is how we got the first X-Men film, uh, which is, uh, in my opinion, still one of the top of that franchise, and honestly, one of the better superhero films. It is so weird, and so just uniquely its own thing. Uh, and Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart really do make this stand alone. Yeah. Yeah. My thought on it is it's just so old. It's older than you remember. I mean, 2000 is it's it's quite a while ago in the 
world of filmmaking. But when you watch it, it perfectly captures the tone of some kind of amalgamation of all the other movies. And it's been 20 years of this franchise. And I think it's just really impressive that the first one they ever made perfectly foresaw what this was going to become in all of its good and bad ways. You know, like it it feels like if you watch this movie, you just get the weird, the good, the campy, the fun, the the metaphorical, the, yes. all the vibes that this that this franchise goes on to try and hit. So it's a great little encapsulation. Like it's kind of impressive when you watch the first movie in a long running thing and it understood what it was from the beginning. You know? Yeah. So I like that. It, it really did, and it never pretended to be something different. Like it, it takes itself very seriously while taking the concept of itself not seriously. Yeah. At all. Like it, it makes fun of. The very idea of it. There's lots of jokes about like, you know, um, they're making fun of like the suits that they would have worn. Like there's all these quips about like, what would you rather have worn? Yellow spandex? Like that kind of mm-hmm. thing. These sort of self-aware like, aren't superhero movies kind of funny? While also taking itself very seriously and sort of saying like, also we have something to say and we can say it. Like this doesn't have to just be an action film, which is in and of itself sort of diminishing. Like that's the the, the movie sort of acknowledges like we're not lesser just because right. we are a superhero slash action movie. Um, that being said, these are inherently silly. And it, yeah. it is, it's just good about saying both at once. It's lovely. Yeah. And I'll say, yeah. um, it, going to the cannoli order, having watched this with um, Wolverine Origins just before, I really actually liked that. Uh, Wolverine's a obviously a big part of this movie. He's one of the, he's arguably yeah. the main character. He's the most recognizable character of the X-Men. So he, you know, he's, he's a big character. And so at the end of Wolverine Origins, he has his memory wiped. And honestly, this memory wiping thing is kind of his the theme of his life. Like this man has lived so many lives that he has had wiped and re-restored and wiped and restored and reborn and things happen. But the point is, if having watched that movie you still understand what kind of person he is like whether he remembers his past or not you understand what how he would act in a certain situation and this movie carries that on really well even though it came before you know like it, it, in the, mm-hmm. the beginning of this movie he kind of takes in rogue which is one of the young also mainish characters of this series and you kind of just understand why like you're like yeah i see i see why he is the way that he is the empathy that drives him the, the kind of humanness that he's trying to capture and it's just it just flows really well and this is just me complimenting the cannoli order no it actually like legitimately this is where i was most impressed yeah is this like is by the by the finishing me. of this movie yeah i really did see it it was like wow you know what it's actually kind of fun because it sets up the idea that what the cannoli order is about in a sense is these two differing storylines that are they, they come and crashing together in the beginning of x-men where you now have all these people that are introduced by by xavier and by that plot and they come head to head with wolverine and like that is the story is like how do these two groups of mutants and in this case how does one individual and all of the rest of them like what does them coming together mean what does that do for what what happens to both of them going forward forever in a very i don't know it felt like almost like star wars-esque to me in a very like sort of faded larger story sort of way and it, yeah, it was just good. It was fun to revisit. It's very much a relic of a time. Yeah. Uh, the costumes are very funny and the acting is very funny sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Anna Paquin oh, sure is there. Yeah. And um, I want to have a quick shout out to Sean Ashmore, who plays Bobby Drake, who will eventually become Iceman, who is very important to me only because he once played Jake, the lead Animorph in the ill-fated Nickelodeon television series Animorphs. 
which I was, of course, a huge fan of because I loved the books. And he plays the lead character in that very, very poor adaptation. Um, so as like a as like a six, seven year old, seeing him in this movie and then also in Animore, like Sean Ashmore was on top of the world for me. Like he was the height of acting. You know, Ian McKellen was nobody to me. Just a nothing actor. He couldn't touch Sean Ashmore's frosted tips. <laughs> I'm so happy for you, Eric. That's lovely. <laughs> and only a year, only like a year later, Ian McKellen would be Gandalf. So then I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I love how those are the things that made them iconic. Too. It's lovely. Of course. Yeah. In a serious compliment to this movie, my, my favorite thing about it is that here's how I see the, the older and quotes in the newer timelines. The newer X-Men movies, the ones that have been coming out recently and they're just over, they, they kind of reach for the stars in, in both literal and figurative ways. Like they're both, they've got like scenes in space and they're trying to do big things and cities are dropping and stuff and they're just very like all over the place and they, they try to be global but also local at the same time. And there's a lot going on because they're kind of competing with the intent scape of not just superhero movies but general blockbusters right now but this movie which is the first of the older ones it is just so grounded in our reality like they, they do not at all try to reach for the stars and i love it like they're no. kind of just like hey our universe is not it's not gotham it's not some kind of other world it's the reality that we live in now with the history and the events that have shaped us in the way that we are right now that have also affected the mutants and they really just ground it in our semblance of society with our past our prejudices our history the lit kicking it off with the literal holocaust and i think that's just the the best possible right. way to start that like you can be silly and also grounded in our reality you know and i think that was really important for this trilogy so i'm glad that they did that with this movie i agree it is very local and i think it's it's interesting to see again like to compare to the mcu for a second those movies pretty much after the avengers became incredibly international right like every film took place in a different country uh, every Avengers film, they traveled to at least three of them, yeah. like all over the globe. Yeah. And this movie primarily takes place in Westchester, New York, a Canadian bar, and then the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Like it really just doesn't, it doesn't go places. It doesn't want to go places. And that's okay. Like it very much feels like a movie that is taking place within your town in a weird way. Like, yeah, it's just, it's different. And I, I feel like that feels like Marvel. It feels very neighborhoody. Yeah. So it was good. It was very good. Very different. Um, especially compared to anything being made today. Like, it's just so utterly not familiar. So, also, I forgot to bring this up for Origins, but as a quick note, uh, these movies are weirdly into Canada. Yes, I had this thought like, at this exact point during my marathon. I was like, Canada has come up like deeply six Canadian. times. Like Alberta. It, it's the, the most I've ever mm. heard Canada come up in any film series ever. Especially a, like, a very America series. Yeah, they're constantly going back to one lake in Canada. He, uh, uh, Wolverine is from Canada, and that just comes up a lot. Like, they're always going to the Canadian Rockies, and he's, he's always lumberjack. hiding out in the Canadian forest. The very last shot and of the trilogy is the, the same lake. Every single thing is that Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, when Ryan Reynolds comes in mm -hmm. as Deadpool, then all the jokes about being Canadian are there, too. So, like, I, I don't, I, this isn't really important. It's just weird especially like you said an american franchise for this movie to be really deeply invested in canada it's good though i'll take it yeah 
Yeah. Before we move on, I'm going to say my singular favorite quote from this movie that I think everyone needs to hear. So it's it's the final fight. They're at the Statue of Liberty and Storm, played by Halle Berry, and I'm sure you've seen her with the iconic white hair and she's her powers are very self-explanatory. Um, she's fighting a bad guy or something. And she goes, oh, she's fighting a bad guy who is called Toad. Yes. <laughs> she goes, do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else and then blasts him with lightning. What does that mean? It's a great line. It's, it's so It's a great. wonderful line. And I will, a fun fact about it is Joss Whedon wrote that line and he was like, haha, wouldn't that be funny as a throwaway? But they liked it so much they kept it in. It feels very much like him. <laughs> okay, so that is X-Men, the first X-Men film. It's kind of confusing to say that movie's title yeah. because its title is just X-Men. All of them are not named great. They're kind of not. It's not as They're bad as the Fast and Furious franchise, but named. pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty inconsistent with the formatting. Which takes us to the sequel, <laughs> which if I'm not mistaken, is called... X2. X2, right? It's not called X-Men X2. No. Oh, but it is right. in some countries. I read about this. They marketed it as oh. X-Men colon the second something like that in some countries the second one <laughs> the second one but i'm pretty yeah. sure in america it's just x2 like it's not it's not x-men 2 it's just x2 which is fine live I die guess. repeat live die repeat the edge of tomorrow x2 <laughs> um so yes x2 uh which uh, came out in 2003 and it is basically like if you want to think of the first x-men film as bringing everyone together and sort of like in in conjunction with first class, sort of like not finishing, but really sort of introducing you and and deepening you in the story of of Professor X and Magneto and like what their conflict is, then X two is like the revisitation of Wolverine. So they're sort of like trading off movies where X two becomes very much more about Wolverine, um, and we are introduced to a lot of his past, which we have already seen technically yeah. due to Origins. Um, but he's in, uh, learning it. And you also get to get a, a look into the bigger story that I don't actually think was at play here, to be completely honest. I think things changed. But the the larger story of the original three films, which is about Jean Grey and her power and sort of who she becomes and, and how she will wield that power. Um, and we have not yet talked about Jean Grey, uh, who is played... In the original films by Famke Johnson, possibly Janssen. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Not it's sure Janssen. how she chooses to pronounce it. Um, but she is, uh, in the original films, it's Famke Janssen. And in the new films, it is Sophie Turner. Uh, but they both play Jean Grey, who, for those who are unaware, is basically just like Professor X. She's a telepath, telekinetic, psychic person and... That's kind of her whole role. She's like the other psychic. Um, and this is your first glimpse into what will become a a really tiring, constant narrative oh in these movies, yeah. which is Jean Grey is very, very powerful and doesn't really know she's very, very powerful. And a lot of people are very afraid of her being very, very powerful. Uh, frankly, if you've seen Star Wars and you know the story of Anakin, then you know the story of Jean Grey. <laughs> like if we're being completely honest, it's the same basic premise uh, of someone who is born very powerfully, and a lot of people are afraid of that. So they stick her with a bunch of people who are like, hey, don't do that. And then one day she figures it out, and then she uh, becomes Darth Vader. Spoiler alert. Yeah, that's uh, literally it. 
crazy ending for X-Men. Um, but yeah, that's X2. Uh, I will note, I do want to bring up one thing. This, by X2, in this order that we're watching, in the cannoli order, we will have seen the character of Colonel William Stryker four times, I believe, and three times. And each of those times, he's played by a different actor. Yeah. And it is remarkable how much he's in these movies and how much you have to keep an eye on it if you actually care because it is a different actor every time. It is time. stunningly hard to follow. Um, he is so important, especially really to Wolverine's is. entire confusing timeline, but he just he's looks different every time. the main villain, like of the entire franchise. He's like the Every single villain? movie, right up to the end of Logan, the only reason why most bad things happen is because he intervened. Right, or because... It's like people that are carrying on his work yeah. or his company or governments that are acting according to his description. Or somebody got caught like, and he picked them up. Or so, Yeah, he, he did something. It's constantly this character and you barely get to know him in this order. It, it's just weird. It's a weird character because, again, like modern franchises, you know, like the best thing I can think of right now is, uh, and this is going to be a crazy dive for people who don't care that much about the MCU, <laughs> but there is a character in The Incredible Hulk who is a general named Ross who doesn't show up again. So that was in 2009. He doesn't show up again until Civil War, which was in 2015, maybe 2016. And he's in it for like three seconds. He then shows up again in Infinity War for like three seconds. And he's supposed to be a big focal point of like the next stage of Marvel movies. But it's very similar only in that like there's just this random character that seems really important. They keep talking about him. He seems very pivotal. But Marvel keeps the same actor. So, like, they're doing, they're kind of doing it the right way, per se. This franchise, one guy, same basic thing, old white military guy, played by five different actors by the end of this watching order. Um, and it's it's exhausting to keep track of. But in X2, I think it is his best role. It is the guy, I don't know his name, which apologies to him, but he plays the patriarch in Succession. And he is fantastic in this role. I really like Stryker. I think he's the best villain, other than Magneto, obviously. I really think he's so charismatically awful. Yeah, he's great. I'm with you. I don't know. I, I think as a kid, there was just something about his whole thing in this movie is that he kidnaps mutants because he's trying to essentially, like, finish the work he began with Wolverine and all these things that, that you just have to watch to make it make sense. But there's just something about this guy's performance. He's so good at being this really self-assured uh, smarmy guy in a very like old way where he's very much like, you know, uh, I, I know best because not only am I elderly, but I'm intelligent. Like, you know, like my generation knows the horrors. So I'm going to stop it before anyone else. Does. It's kind of thanos -y. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Like he, he, he's right. Yeah. I believe he was cast because he was so good yeah. in Hannibal. Yeah. And they, they yeah. wanted him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He, he's good. He's really good. So X2, uh, finishes out with uh, Jean Grey's death, uh, supposedly. So basically, as they're trying to escape from the from Alkali Lake, which is the lake that they will return to approximately, let me do the math here, 100 times in this franchise, um, which is in Canada, somewhere in Canada, um, they're escaping from this lake where Wolverine was basically made and where they keep returning to. And uh, she stops this the lake from crashing their plane, oh, and she right. dies Especially in the Especially because it she doesn't her. seem like she needed to, but also she does. Yeah. 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 Yep. 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 
And that's when you see the birth of like the new story because her eyes glow and all this stuff. I just want to say though that this was again, like it's just as a little cultural artifact for people. So you have to remember that once upon a time, post-credit scenes weren't a thing. They just weren't. Post-credit scenes did not exist. Like most of the time, a post-credit scene or a mid-credit scene, like especially for comedies or or like rom-coms, that's where you would stick blooper reels. Or that's where you would stick, like, the musical segment that for some reason is in these movies. Yeah, or the true story Um, behind the fiction or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's what existed. But, like, when the credits rolled, the plot was over. And then, of course, famously in 2008, at the end of Iron Man, Samuel Jackson shows up and says, I would like to tell you about the Avengers Initiative and everyone loses their mind. So, the reason I bring this up is because the closest thing that I got to before 2008 and before the birth of the Marvel Easter egg and now... Every freaking movie has an Easter egg, um, or has an end credit, I mean. The closest you could get was the end of X2. Like, that was so shocking, I can't describe to you. Like, I remember shouting in the theater. I remember my parents freaking out. I remember the people in the theater freaking out. When at the And I'm not even talking, this is in post-credit, by the way. Like, the, the credits haven't rolled yet, so it's still the movie. There is this moment where you're looking at the lake, and you suddenly see in the reflection of the lake, the, the, the sort of, like, visage, what looks like the 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 sun reflecting off the lake is making the shape of a phoenix and that was so overwhelmingly shocking at that time nowadays they would have cut that and that would be stuck at the end of the trailer or the the end of the credits rather and it's just a weird cultural artifact like those cliffhangers don't exist in movies anymore they always exist after the movie ends and that's a weird thing like i it's just so strange to see that left over yeah yeah that's very true. And th- and like we were talking about the Dark Phoenix thing, that's what every big comic book fan came to this franchise expecting it to build to. So when that happens, yeah. you're like, oh my God. Like it's, it's just a big thing in the comics that there's the Phoenix Force and it's always associated with her and it's the exact Anakin thing that you said where eventually she becomes bad and blows up and I'm sure right. you've heard Sophie Turner does it. Like to, to draw a good analogy here for, like my I was not an X-Men fan. Like I didn't grow up with the comics. I didn't, I watched the TV show a little bit like the cartoon, but these movies were really what did it. But the best analogy I can think of is at the end of Batman Begins when um, uh, Gordon shows up and gives Batman a, a Ziploc bag, essentially mm-hmm. an evidence bag. And he says, can you look into something for me? This guy's been robbing banks. And he turns it over and it's a playing card and it has the Joker on it. Like it's the same kind of thing yeah. where like the, the, that's what Dark Phoenix is for X-Men fans is it is the event. It is the thing. She's the character. You know that this is what you're going to get to. And again, I didn't know any of this. It was just exciting because as a small child, any any bit of excitement is exciting, right? right? Like the, the idea that this cool character that I thought was dead isn't dead, that's it. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that's everything <laughs> that was the to bar. a child. So Simpler times. That's, yeah, very low bar. Yeah. I just want to say that I really love this movie. I I, I think this is such a great movie. And I, I, I like this about 50% more than the average person does. I, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was the humor really worked for me. It's a pretty funny movie. The the jokes are kind of all over. The, yeah. the humor hits. Um, and I'll, I'll say something specific that, that makes me love this movie. I think the action scenes are just 
so true to its comic book really i love it just kind of feels like it leaps off the pages and just really fun action mm. scenes and at the beginning of this movie there's this nightcrawler scene where he sees the guy he's blue and he can kind of like oh, phase yeah. it, not the phase, white house phase scene. The word? yeah he teleports yeah so he's brainwashed into trying to assassinate the president and that scene it's kind of in slow motion it's really well done and when you consider that it was in some of the earlier days of cgi being able to convince pull off things like that it's basically a great precursor to the quicksilver scenes that we all love now like the way they do it watching it's it now i was like great. that is just that holds up and also alan cunning plays nightcrawler wonderfully and he is yeah. okay he, he's really fun he's really great and fun fact he was cast because nightcrawler's character is german and alan cunning is um fluent in german but when I see him, every time I just go, oh, Floop from Spy Kids. And it's probably the most disrespectful floop. thing yep. I can. It's always Floop. It's always Floop. It's not our fault. So as soon as you see him, you go, oh, Floop is blue now. Like, you can't help it. It's not his fault. Like, I, I, he's done lots of great movies. But that Spy Kids was so freaking influential on our generation that you will never get away from being Floop. He's Floop. Sorry, Alan Cumming, you're Floop. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> this, movie, this man I'm is like, such a ah, great Floop actor, and we will always <laughs> like, interesting, uh, good for him. Um, also, two very weird things about this movie. So, when I, so again, I didn't really know much about the X-Men or anything, but when you explain Magneto's powers to me, like, like a friend really sat me down once and did, where she was like, okay, he controls metal, and I was like, Okay, I yeah. know that you can always take liberties with everything, but like, doesn't that mean that this man has control of pretty much everything? Like, in that the yeah. earth has iron and metal in its core and in the ground, so he can control the earth. And also, blood has iron, so he can control people. And she was like, haha, whatever. But then I watched this movie, and there is this brutal scene where Magneto kills a man by literally pulling all the iron out of his blood just through his shirt. I can't believe I forgot to mention yeah. that. That's one of my all-time favorite scenes in any it is film like ever. Like, that is not a joke. Brutal. That scene is so well done. Like, it's set up so rewardingly, where the whole movie, you know he's getting out. You just don't how? know how yet. Exactly. And it's so, like quiet and subtle and then when he does it and of course this is ian mckellen who can drink water out of a cat bowl with grandeur uh that's a cat's reference for all you cats fans um uh it's just so well done like he gets up and is so terrifying and the mist that comes out of that guy's body oh god that scene is amazing it shows how scary he is horrifying where you really realize that he if he wanted to and then they force him to in certain sequels he could do literally anything yeah it's pretty crazy it was just it was very crazy seeing that come to life because again i had never seen this movie before so i was like oh they do that um and he he kind of he forms the iron into those these three little balls and he forms a disc out of it and then he floats and it's and you can see like the and they they spin around him like atoms yeah yeah those are so cool and it's unnecessary but it's cool pretty disgusting but you did it so good job (laughs) yeah that movie is is i completely forgot about that scene (laughs) i I really want to just echo those two sentiments like the action scenes in this movie some of them the specifically those two his escape and the white house scene hold up so well Uh, and i i we can have this gripe in a later episode where we investigate why a lot of modern action is so bad looking but those scenes are so good at like letting you see stuff like you see i'm gonna keep calling him floop you see floop like (laughs) teleporting around the room and he leaves these blue trails of smoke and it's beautiful and you can see it like you the camera doesn't cut a lot 
so you can actually see what's happening. Yeah. And it doesn't look bad at all. It looks like great. It looks better than a lot of stuff that comes out in the last five years, and that's alarming. Like, it's... My God, is that, that a good great scene. Opener. X2 is really yeah, good. Yeah, X2 is a fun, yeah. great movie. It really is. Uh, also, Halle Berry gets to level up in that movie. Oh, yeah. Like, in number one, she's pretty powerful. In X2, she gets big. Like, she's she's summoning storms. Like, she remember, she like in the first one, she's like, I'm going to shock this toad with lightning. And in the second one, she literally brings down tornadoes, like like 18 of them from the yeah. sky in order to get rid of some fighter, some fighter jets. She levels up. It's very like Thor going from in the Avengers, I can bottleneck this portal to like, oh, I am yeah. the lightning. <laughs> I can fry yeah, everybody like literally, in a 10 mile radius. I can create lightning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's cool. She never got her due. No, we, not We can have a separate Halle Berry episode, but at least Storm. I feel like Storm should yeah. get more. So yeah, that leads us to the third movie in the original trilogy. The Last Stand. The Last Stand. Yeah. The Last Stand. So I think the first thing we should talk about is that this is not Brian Singer anymore. Yes, that is the first thing they have written down here. <laughs> yeah, it changes. Uh, it changes to Brett Ratner. And frankly, the quality goes with it. <laughs> like you, it's... It's hard to say and we won't dwell, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, it is. We should know, by the way, that these movies have uh, quite a few people in them that have not had really great track records uh, with being good people in the last five years or so. So um, that is worth noting. Uh, I will say, I think, you know, I, I saw X-Men Last Stand when it came out in theaters. So in 2006, when I was a whole 12 years old. And even then I was not thrilled. I was like, well, that was okay, I guess. Um, but none of the rest of it really stu- stood out to me. I just remember thinking it was a little weird to watch with my parents because of what I'm about to say. Watching it as an adult... There is a lot in this movie that is, it is very clear that Brett Ratner, or whoever the, I, I, I should say this, uh, he, I don't think he wrote the film, so maybe this is on Simon Kinberg, maybe this is whatever, probably numerous people. I'm not going to assign blame necessarily, but this movie has a very different relationship with women than the previous two films do, and than virtually any other film of the franchise does. Like, heavily different relationship with women. Uh, it is far more sexual and there's just like language changes too that are are it's so stark you feel like you're in a different franchise for a bit yeah uh, and that I think was the most even now was sort of the most off putting part where I'm like man this this suddenly got very adult and not in a good way like in a very like we're gonna be kind of cruel way and they really weren't before like to be honest the X Men movies were kind of killing it yeah in, in the department especially for two thousand I, I mean it, let's even set a bar let's set a bar this low. We didn't get another, like, major woman character in the MCU for, like, eight years. And X-Men right out of the gate has a bunch of weird women in it. Like, like, and they're not all the same. They're all very strange. They all have differing abilities. They all have differing roles. Some of them are really cool. Some of them are lame, and that's okay. Yeah, and Zoe Kravitz like, plays a, low a bar, stripper but... who was actually treated with respect. So the whole thing kind of works pretty well. Yeah, it's interesting. And then uh, Last Stand. It's just different. So I would say that one, it leaves a disappointing kind of taste in my mouth because of just how kind of yicky it gets. Um, All that being said, as a whole, I thought this one was a lot better than I remember only because, only because of this, it is a very mediocre film at best. But when it hits its highs, it freaking soars. Like this movie knows how to deliver on payoff better than a lot of movies I've seen. 
it really does a good job of at least wrapping up the original trilogy of films and and making sure that as a fan you feel like you your time was well spent. Yeah. The one image that I have in my head of this movie which is extremely distasteful, it's so you know how PG movies get one curse word? Yep. Um I'm not sure if the word bitch counts as that curse word. I think it does, but this is the this is I'm pretty sure this is how the movie chose to use it. There's this large guy named the Juggernaut. So obviously he sounds like he's a big dude. He's British. <laughs> he's just violent yeah. as hell. That's his entire personality. Famous line. Famous yeah, line. and Ellen Page <laughs> is a small woman. Like she looks like Ellen Page does, except she was even younger than she is now. So arguably passes for like a fourteen year old. Um, and she is yep. breaking into a facility to to save a child, like a young child who is imprisoned and being experimented on. So she's young, she's a woman, and she's saving a person's life, and they are the last hope. And this large, vulgar British man runs in and goes, I'm the juggernaut bitch attempting to kill her. And that is my image of this movie. So yeah, it's not great. No, for sure. And legitimately, like, that's what I'm talking about. I remember watching it in the theaters as a kid and thinking it was kind of uncomfortable. Like, to sit next to my mom and be like, A, I'm a kid. Like, I'm, you know, I'm still in that age where I'm not supposed to know what that is. Like, I'm, I'm supposed to act as though I don't know any of this. And B, it's just such a severe shift. And like, this isn't, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't want to use this as though, like, I'm not trying to morally position myself with or against that word or who uses it or how it's used. It's more about like, within the context of the first two films, and like the kind of like the vernacular and the the, the culture of those movies, it is antithetical to it. it. It is so starkly different. And it really stands out to you where you're like, oh, I'm watching a different movie. Um the sexualization comes in there too, where Jean Grey is oh far more sexual. And it's not like there weren't innuendos before. And it's not like there wasn't, you know, like uh, Mystique was very sexual too, but differently. Yeah, but like, like it's the just, grabbing and kissing and things God, like that on another it, level. Yes. It's it's very weird. And it, it feels like a different, you know, maybe it's a change in gaze. Maybe it's a change in in agency. I don't know. But, but Mystique always felt very powerful and very confident and very sure to me. Yeah. And this feels different. It just, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Basic rundown of this one is it's, again, it's the finale of the original trilogy. Uh, and this one is about, uh, basically the, the government has developed a cure for, for, for mutancy for the mutant gene and they want to distribute it and of course this is basically what magneto has been warning against since the 1960s in first class and he is summoning his all of his power and all of his brotherhood of mutants together in order to stop them and of course on the other side protecting the general concept of humanity and innocence is xavier and all of his his mutants um and the x-men and uh yeah that's the basic premise uh Big spoilers, they kill off quite a few people in this movie. Uh, like, as in, Xavier dies. And it kind of, it was shocking. I remember that being very shocking to me when I saw that in theaters. That's a big one. It just, it really does feel like it comes out of nowhere. And not in a bad way, I'm not saying that. It's just like, I don't remember when Harry Potter book six came out. But I don't know if it was before or after this. So this is going to inform my my kind of feeling on this. But it felt to me like the first time I'd ever seen the Dumbledore death. Mm, where like yeah. when, when Dumbledore dies and you're like, I literally can't believe that just happened. Like you can't because pr- prior to that, I feel like the general idea is like you just don't kill off your leads in a weird way. Like he's he's the character. You can't kill him. Of course not. 
And then he just gets evaporated in this movie. And it is very, yeah. very sort of like shocking. And it's and sad. Like, oh my God. It is very sad. They actually treat it with a lot of, a lot of interesting sort of tact. It's, it's, and, uh, probably the most beautiful thing is, is I think is the relationship between Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, right? Like his reaction to it, which I wish we got more of, but there's this sort of sadness of like, he very much wishes that this could have gone a different way because he never felt animosity toward them. They were simply in the way, but he never felt animosity toward his brothers. So yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't, what do you, where do you want to leave with this movie? I don't know what else to say with it other than like, I wouldn't recommend it at all. But <laughs> I, again, I literally cannot describe to you how good its final moments are. Again, like in the scheme of like, in the world of MCU end credits and everything else, the final two, there actually is an end credit scene in this movie, by the way. Yes. But the the final shot with, with Ian McKellen sitting at that chess table, I, I got up out of my seat and screamed in the theater. Like that was such a moment yeah. Yeah. I'll say I think to 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 close off this round of casting, there's two people we didn't mention who did great jobs with their characters. Um number one, the the original Mystique was Rebecca Romaine. Her take on Mystique, if you contrast it with Jennifer Lawrence's, is a little more reserved, a little more kind of I don't know what I don't know how to say it. I mean, she's definitely like a sexier version, but in that like she has full control over her sexiness. Like she's pretty I, I know this is this is going to sound stupid, but I literally, I don't know a better way to describe it. I think I know what you're getting at. She has more mystique. Yes. Do you know what I it. mean? That's exactly Like literally it. she is more, that, that's it. I, I don't know a better way to say it. Yeah. I feel like she, she, she deserves a yeah. mention. And also James Marsden Absolutely. is Cyclops. Uh, he's the, you <laughs> know, the one with the, 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 the red, <laughs> how do I, laser eyes. It's laser eyes. He's got laser, laser eyes. eyes. And um, he... You know, his whole deal is I feel like he's always too pretty to survive. Like, he's always the boyfriend who's too pretty, and then he dies. Oh, yeah, he dies very early in this movie, The Last Stand. He's the he's how we know it's that Dark weird. Phoenix is dark, I guess, because she kills him, and he's our boyfriend. Just, do, you, do you get the sense that there was something else going on? And what I mean by that is, having watched this now and having, like, a little more knowledge of just the world... It kind of feels like something happened in the contract negotiations. I got that too. You know what I mean? Well. Like, it feels like he wasn't a fan of Brian Singer leaving. Like, something. Something like that. Of, like, they kill him nearly instantly. And it's, like, he's James Marsden. He's an attractive leading guy. Like, you could have put him in any era of Hollywood and he would have belonged. Like, looks-wise. And they just unceremoniously kill him right away and he never gets a send-off like he never comes up again he doesn't get like a isn't in this movie he doesn't get like a a dream he doesn't get anything it's just gone forever in a way that i was like man who did he piss off something feels wrong yeah that man is forgotten yeah but anyway that was the original trilogy so that yeah we're done with the original trilogy so that leads us to the next film in the cannoli order which is uh the wolverine two movies in a row that are my favorites so i'm very excited actually so the wolverine i have only seen once before this and when i saw it i remember thinking the same thing which was why has no one else seen this no one i know saw it no friend saw it no family saw it yeah it feels no, like it, may as well it started exist. existing when we started this marathon and everyone was like which movie now it's so freaking good this is I can't emphasize movie. enough how cool it is. Yeah. That is the exact word. It's, um, so basically The Wolverine is a, it is many sequels. It is a direct sequel to The Last Stand, kind of. It is a 
direct sequel, sort of, to X-Men Origins Wolverine and is like a general, you know, sort of passing of the torch from both franchises into this one. And it is with James Mangold, who would direct this, and Logan, and the recently talked about on this podcast, Ford versus Ferrari. And it is very good. The basic plot is Wolverine has to go to Japan in order to meet with a former friend uh, and is sort of embroiled in this, like, larger plot of saving uh, his friend's granddaughter and getting over Jean Grey's death. That's, like, the big thing is he is in mourning and he needs to get over that death. He's haunted. Um, I'm going to just quickly gush about this movie and then I'm going to leave the rest to you. Uh, I, I love Westerns. Uh, having just grown up with them and my grandfather and my father were both very big into them and instilled that in me early and I watched them my entire life. I didn't realize that the first time I watched it. I'm pretty sure because I watched it on my phone like a dingus. Oh God. This movie is a really good Western. Uh, It is a neo-Western in every sense of the word. It is, I mean, essentially this movie is about a lone gunman who comes to town and has to rescue the ranch owner's daughter. And in the process of that has to, of course, fight with rival land barons and, you know, the bandits that are trying to stop him. And there, there's even some, honestly, some like, um, kind of like indigenous narrative in there a little bit in, in like a Western trope sense, except in this case, it's ninjas. Yeah. Like it's so, I don't know, I, as a person who just loves Westerns and also loves martial arts films, and this movie borrows a lot of interesting action sequences from sort of like wuxia films, um, he does like a lot more like leaping over rocks and and like kind of almost like floating into combat in this movie in a way that he's never done in any other movie. I just freaking love like I ate it up. Not only is the story not like bad at all, it's fairly interesting. A lot of the actors are very interesting in it. Um and frankly, like this movie levels up Hugh Jackman a lot into well, this character becomes a lot more of a character and there's a lot of sort of haunting feelings in it, but um just on a very surface level. This is like a movie that's made for me. I don't think I could have hated this movie. Like it's if you just gave it to me on a platter of like, we're going to make a Western that takes place in modern day Japan. It's going to have samurai swords and it involves superheroes. Just take the money. I didn't have to see the movie. Just take my money. Yeah. I love that you just gushed about this and then handed it to me like I'm going to do something other than gush. This is I freaking love this movie, too. I mean, (laughs) I feel the exact same way. I'm not like the biggest. I I really like Westerns, but it wasn't like a formative part of my childhood or anything. But for the same reason, I will love any good, any well-executed neo-Western-ish movie. And this is this is it. It's such a great freaking movie. It is. It's a I'll say this. um, It's. I don't know if they were really planning Logan when they made this movie, or I'm not sure they intended for like the third part of this trilogy to exist, but I don't think they were specifically planning the tone or the themes of Logan that well, but it's a really great Logan prequel. That's my weird thing about it. I think it's just the themes are so solid and it's so hard to lead into a movie like that. It is, and we'll obviously talk about Logan, but it is kind of a very different movie. But the way that like Viper or Dr. Green or Viper as a character, the way her whole, the poison theme plays into the movie and is very intelligently fed into all parts of the plot and the whole Yukio's death foreshadowing power and how that exactly works out in Logan and really just it just foreshadows perfectly his kind of lifelong quest to just 
die one day. And the movie has a very relatively low reliance on CGI, really, and it works out great. I mean, there's one weird sequence well, with a until it doesn't. silver samurai. Yeah. <laughs> but apart from that, yeah. the, I like to pretend that part of the movie Until it is becomes like... a heavy CGI film, yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah. I was about to say, I didn't realize that until you just mentioned it, uh, adding into those things that feed well into Logan... The whole point of that scene is that he's trying to pull the adamantium out of Logan. You realize that? Like, in other words, like, if he had accomplished that goal, then in Logan, he'd be fine. That is so true. Wow. The whole point of it is that that's what ends up killing him. And in in in, in the Wolverine, he's literally trying to pull it out of him. Uh, I don't know. I just thought that that's... Thinking about that, that's an interesting little thing. Yeah. Anyway. But also, this movie is obviously set in Japan. And my whole deal with it is it, it kind of just tre- treats the culture with a lot of respect. Like, they, the big theme in the movie is... I mean, it's not perfect. I'm sure you could nitpick. You can nitpick with any movie. But a big theme in the movie is honor. And the way that, you know, the, the, the characters kind of talk about the role that honor has in Japanese culture, that actually teaches Wolverine some pretty important and lasting lessons. But it's also not exoticized as, oh, we just needed some collectivist culture to teach us about honor. It's very specifically a Japanese movie. And we learn about like we visit all these very specific places in Tokyo and they talk about how and they basically have characters around him talk in Japanese and we're kind of left out and unless you speak Japanese you understand just as little as Logan does and you're it's you perfectly get that fish out of water perspective where he is in a place where he never expected to find himself and you are following along with him like it's done well there's some crazy strong women in this movie every every other main character is basically a woman um sort of really and they interesting all, like have really well fleshed out missions and stories and characters and they kind of i think this movie passes the bechdel test like right out the water they're just like yeah we're they're actual people they've got like actual they've got things going on they've got specific conflicts between them and they've got the family stuff they're trying to work out it's all just done really well i completely agree um that was actually something i i this movie had a big enough effect on me that i would really like to actually rewatch it me soon too. and do kind of like a I deep watch because the the thing that i'm really interested in is again sort of going off the 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 western aspect um the way that you just mentioned sort of how tokyo and japan is used is it is not it is meant to be foreign not because it's japanese but essentially what it's playing on is the trope in westerns of the uncivilized man who is forced to come back to society Hmm. right so like you have your your drunk uh mountain man or your drunk gunslinger who has spent his life on the road who is living out on his own and through the course of the narrative is forced to come back into society is forced to come into town and because he's in town, he has to deal with the conflicts that come with town, which is civilization, right? Like other people's motives, other people's wants and needs. And that's what I thought was so interesting as I was watching this. I was like, damn, that is such an interesting way to use that trope because normally it would be exoticized. And that isn't really the point here. It's it's not about it being Japan. That's not why it's foreign to him. Why it's foreign to him is because it is a family, because it is a civilization, because it is lots of activity and people, and he mm. has spent the better part of several years living in a cave in, guess where? Canada. 
so it's just I, I found that a really interesting sort of play on that trope. So I, I, I really want to rewatch this one. It's um, and like I said, do kind of a deep watch. It's it is an interesting movie. Yeah. The thing I couldn't stop thinking about while watching this movie is how much it feels like an extended episode or season of Arrow, the TV show. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but yeah. I love that show. No, it and actually like does. Thing, Whoa, weird right? call. I, I don't know. I don't know yeah. what it is. Like, but the whole thing felt like no, if I closed my eyes and blurred my vision or wasn't listening well enough, I could think that Arrow was on TV. And I think it's because it's kind of the same thing, right? It's, a, it's the same story. Like Oliver, what is his name? Oliver? No, that's a good call. Am I making that up? Oliver, yeah. Oliver, yeah. it's just been no, so many right. years since I've watched that show. But um, he's also, you know, <laughs> he was on that island all by himself. And he also trained in some vaguely yeah. Asian culture that I don't think they really bothered to flesh out too much. And he nope. also kind of is, is gruff and doesn't really know how to fit in. And he's also got these skills and he's dealing with a lot of haunting losses. And there's a lot of strong women-ish. Um, but basically, it felt like an Arrow episode. And I really like Arrow. So it worked for me. No, that's a good call. It does kind of feel like that. I would say probably better quality. Uh, yes. Generous, but yes, indeed. <laughs> it definitely does feel like Arrow. Yeah. That's a good call. Yeah. I don't know. I I think the strangest thing about this movie is its very end. And I only say that because of what you had mentioned before of the fact that Logan sort of doesn't tie into it. Like it, it, it does thematically, but the end of this movie suggests a whole new set of movies if you want it. A whole new set of things yeah, you could explore. I, something and that the MCU we'll would have turned into a again. Disney Plus series in five seconds. Yeah, which is good. Yeah, I'd watch it. <laughs> but, but anyway. So anyway, that's The Wolverine, which is sort of, I'm going to call it the sleeper hit. Nobody expected it, but it's great. Did you know that this movie was almost directed by Darren Aronofsky of Black Swan? I did know that. Isn't that weird? That mother fame. I would have loved to see a cut of that. I want to see that. Very weird. Very, very different movie. Darren, if you're out there, you're listening. Which you are to our fantastic podcast. I think you should make this movie anyway. I know he listens. I'll watch. (laughs) Make it. So that is The Wolverine. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let you lead us into the next one because I think you adore this next one. Oh, it's so Uh, great. (laughs) So why don't you kick us off and tell us all about X-Men, The Days of Future Past. Okay, so... Days of Future Past is where our cannoli order gets its name from. I'm really not sure how the shape of the cannoli explains that there are two separate but interlocking timelines. It should have just called been called the X timeline or something because it's really better explained by the shape of an X. But the point is, this is where we cross over. The, at this point, the timeline was just so messy that they were just like, you know what? Let's just use the Days of Future Past comic storyline and reset a bunch of stuff. But basically what happens in this movie is they retcon half the stuff that happened in the past. So what happened, the concept is that we're in the actually near future. Is it like the year like 2023 or something? It's 2023. It's supposed to be like soon. Yeah, but if you watch it, it looks like... Uh, I don't know how to explain, like the year like 4,000. It's like Blade Runner. Yes, it looks like Blade Runner. It is, there's, it's just. They're giving us way too much credit. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what they expected, but it's not this. (laughs) And basically the the world for mutants has gone completely south and they're being hunted and all mutant allies are being killed and everything is bad. And they're, they're running minute by minute from these large robots that can, these sentinel robots that can adapt to any X-Men power and hunt them down. And what they they need to do is go back in time and 
don't think about this too heavily, but change one specific action that then changes the entire future. And I cannot stress enough that you cannot really figure out why this specific action really would change that much and all that kind of stuff. But basically, Mystique kills some businessman (laughs) and that businessman made these robots and if and then she gets because she kills him two things happen people realize the need for his robots and they become you know the the killing machines that they are and number two she gets captured and her shape-shifting sort of dna is is experimented on and used to turn these robots into the killing machines that they are so basically mystique kills some guy and then all the bad stuff happens and they are completely convinced that if she doesn't that they'll be fine and they're right but don't think about it too much um, it's best in general yeah. with this franchise not to dwell. So basically what they do is they go back and they say, okay, uh, Ellen Page, you have the power to, you have the, first off, you have the power to phase through walls. And somehow that means you also have the power to send someone's consciousness back in time. I'm sure this makes sense in the yeah. comics, but it makes no sense It's in to the me. comics, but I, no, in, in the movies, it just shows up. Also, just as a quick note too, like when we say that Ellen Page is back, like it's kind of a big deal to watch this movie in, in the scope of the actual real world timeline, because this is the first time we're seeing the original cast since 2006. So it's been uh, nine years, something like that. Like it's been quite a while. And then suddenly they're all back. And even Ellen Page, like it's so cool to see her back. Yeah. So she's, and she obviously, being Ellen Page, doesn't look like she's aged a day, so it's great. Um, Also, the ongoing thing with this series is don't think about aging, because people either don't age for 50 years, and then age 50 years in 10 years. It's just a whole thing. I have some gripes about that. Most of the time, it doesn't matter. But then sometimes the movies make it matter, and I hate it when it does. We'll get to that. I am just such a sucker for any movie that is any semblance of a heist element. And this is basically a heist movie. The whole movie is just them going back in time going, if you don't make this exact point, like, it's just very endgame-y where they're just like, you have to go back and change this exact thing. And then a very endgame-esque thing happens where the, you know, uh, somebody trips and falls and Loki grabs the Tesseract and stuff goes south so they have to improvise and all of that kind of stuff happens so so wolverine gets sent back in time because his healing powers mean that his brain can take that kind of intensity of time travel or whatever it is um so he goes back (laughs) don't again don't think about this too hard and then it just becomes (laughs) a fun heist movie like they're in the 70s i think yes 1973 again on that that scale of like how well they do period pieces it's pretty okay it's not bad in my opinion mm-hmm. i don't know if you agree um mm-hmm. but i think the no, biggest strength of that is that um james mcavoy basically plays like a 70s heroin abuser but he's abusing a serum that helps him forget about all of the stuff and suppresses powers in exchange for him being able to walk but it's a clear metaphor and it's done really well because this is the vietnam movie too Yes, it is. Ah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Like a ton of our characters have left because they went to Vietnam and they died. So that's like part of the reason why he's doing this is his students died and and you see Lucas still in Vietnam in a part that doesn't really go anywhere ever again. And um, it's just, yeah, I I, I actually, just to kind of, to clarify that, like that is a uh, kind of a weird thing since the rest of the time we're supposed to think he becomes Patrick Stewart. But I think it's an interesting way to sort of say like, people's pasts do not often reflect their present like it's just people become different people you know uh yeah and this and this movie is probably best known to you as the movie with the quicksilver scene yes 
which I, oh, I could go on for years about how much I love that scene, but it was just such an extra joy watching it again. I've watched it on YouTube countless times, and every single time it holds up, so. Did you know that it was seven months of work by 70 digital artists? Jesus, really? 70 people over seven months made that Quicksilver scene. For those who don't know what we're talking about, you've seen this scene. Like, even if you haven't watched it, this scene is influential enough that I guarantee you've seen something with it in it. Like, if you saw the recent Sonic movie or uh, some more recent episodes of, like, the Flash TV show. Like, all of those exist in the way they do because of this movie. Like, this scene that she's talking about is really influential. Yeah. And also... Evan Peters as Quicksilver is just so good in this movie. I I love him. The whole deal with Quicksilver is if you can slow time down yeah. that much, the like the kind of ADHD esque impatience you have to have, he plays it perfectly. Right. I'm gonna take this moment to clarify for all the people who definitely don't care about what I'm about to clarify. So Evan Peters, that's his name, right? Yes. He plays the character Quicksilver in this movie, who is implied to be the child of Magneto. This is also, if I'm not mistaken, this came out within a year, uh, plus or minus one, of The Age of Ultron. Ultron. <laughs> a movie that features Aaron Taylor Johnson playing the character Quicksilver, who has a twin sister, or at least a sister, who is Scarlet Witch. And I remember some people in my life being confused. Naturally so. Because two different things that don't relate to each other, that aren't from the same company, featured a character that is exactly the same. Played very differently, but is the same character. Uh, basically, this has to do with who owns the rights to what characters. This is one of the few things where both companies, that is to say Disney and Fox, owned the rights to this character. The difference being, Fox can use Quicksilver if they call him a mutant. Disney can own him if they call him an Avenger. So, like, they just can't call him a mutant. And Fox can never imply that he ever meets Thor. And as long as they do that... They can have the exact same character twice. And one of them can have a bad accent and the other one can just be American. It's very strange. I don't know why they chose to do it. I I don't get it. But it is an interesting choice. And uh, undeniably, if you want to compete these things against each other, I think it can be said that the one thing that X-Men wins is it had a better Quicksilver. Absolutely. So yeah, this is the movie with um, the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey time travel where Ellen Page (laughs) phases Wolverine through time through the sheer power of being a lesbian. And then they are in the (laughs) 70s and Evan Peters runs through a circular room and there's a lot of quips and it's a fun heist movie. And if you don't think about it too hard, they set up a brand new timeline for the X-Men. So basically what happens is all of the past stuff we've seen, all of the stuff we know in quotes that happened in the past, what we just happen differently. We don't know. Right. But it definitely led to some things being different in the present. Right. It's different enough that they all at least are not constantly fighting for their lives. So they're all in the mansion and the school and everything is fine. And meta-wise, it is a beautiful send-off. Like for the original franchise. It really is so tactfully done. I, I really love that ending. Where basically Wolverine wakes back up and Hugh Jackman is walking through the mansion, which is the same mansion that it's been since 2000. And he gets to see, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart again. And you get to see Rogue, who, if you're not watching the Rogue cut, this is your first time seeing her in this movie. Um, You get to see Sean Ashmore again. You get to see Ellen Page. You get to see the guy who played Colossus. You get to see Halle Berry. You get to, like, 
and every and 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 uh, James Marsden is even back for just a brief moment, and 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 Gene, uh, Gene Gray, and Gene is back, and it's just a really beautiful way to kind of say like, yes, we need to carry this franchise on, and yes, we cannot keep using these care these these actors, but we want to pay respect, and we want to show you that like we care about them, and it really does come through. Like it is very evident that the the people who made this movie in particular they really deeply love this group of people and these actors and it just feels right i don't know i I, it was really beautiful it was very emotional um very nostalgic in a way so that was good i'm really glad that you love this movie so much i uh i i don't think i'm as in love with it and i think that's largely because of what like what came after which isn't even its fault it's just (laughs) i don't know um but i'm glad you love it so much because it is it is worth a lot of it is worth loving and i think the biggest thing is this has got to be the weirdest film in the entire mix. Like this movie has, it really just has some, some, it just takes leaps. Like I can't, you know, I know if you saw Endgame, I know that movie seems like it was really weird and like it did a lot of weird things. It's just not even close. Like I can't describe to you how weird this movie is and how big of a leap it felt like it was taking where it was basically saying like, we're going to run two different timelines at the same time. And we're going to basically in universe tell you that you have been watching two different things. And we're going to acknowledge all that. It just doesn't happen. I don't know. It, it just felt very risky to me. And, and in a way that I don't think a lot of movies now feel like they take risks, like big blockbusters. They don't feel risky. This felt risky. Like it's such a weird, and it's all the original actors back and they're all older. And it's just such an interesting move. And I don't, I don't know if there's a good comparable. I really don't. Like, Marvel doesn't have it because they only more recently started making these movies. Like, really, the only thing I could think of is if they actually did a good Justice League movie. And part of the movie is that Linda Carter and Michael Keaton, and if he was still alive, Christopher Reeves, have to go forward in time so that they can get Ben Affleck and the gang back together. You know what I mean? Like, it, like, it would have to be something nuts where you're like, what is happening? How are you doing this? Um, and that's the feeling you get from this movie. A lot of it is just like, how are you doing this? How do you even keep track of this? It also has some of the better action sequences of this franchise, I think. Oh, definitely. The, the fights in yeah. the future are really good. I don't know who Blink is. I don't know her character. I don't know her actor, but I really liked her. She was cool. Blink the portals? Yeah, Blink the portal girl. She's cool. Like she just makes these portals appear and people like, she does like cool physics stuff with them. I was just into it. I don't know why. I was into it. Love a good portal. <laughs> yeah, also this movie like breathes life back into X-Men basically. Like this is why yeah. they got the budget to do Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. Yeah. They, they were just like, oh, people still like this series and it's fun. Let's do more. And then they made some trash. Yes. So that's actually where, unfortunately, I think that's where I'm going to go next is uh, as, as I really do enjoy this movie quite a bit. But my issue is that they never, like, they made a bunch of rules, and if they just hadn't made those rules, I'd be fine. But the problem is, within the universe of their own movies, within this movie, they're very explicit about things. So what I'm talking about is, during the course of this film, they go back in the past, of course, and there's a period in which they are speaking with, um, I never remember this actor's name, but the guy who plays Beast. Oh, Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt, thank you. They're talking to Nicholas Holt. And they're trying to basically say like, hey, we're going to change this one event and it's going to change everything. And Nicholas Holt says, hey, according to a lot of theories that we pulled off Wikipedia, 
time <laughs> might not work that way. In other words, a lot of time might be an in, in inevitability. So that essentially the time stream is exactly what it is, and you can throw a pebble in that stream, but it will not fundamentally change the course of the stream. And in order to do it, you actually have to throw in like a big old rock. And only then will the stream change. But even then, most things are going to stay the same. Like they say that in the world of their movie. And the reason they do that is because you need to buy at the end of the movie that the one thing they changed was that Mystique didn't kill Tyrion Lannister. And because mm -hmm. she doesn't kill Tyrion... In the future time, in 2023, Hugh Jackman gets to wake up and have a really nice day with all of his old pals. And everyone's alive and everyone's chill and everyone's cool and a-okay, right? That yeah. is the universe they set up. They said, that's pretty much going to change that. Everything else is going to stay the same. And then in the next film, they shoot themselves in the foot. And I <laughs> That's the part that I just don't like. Oh my goodness. If they hadn't so set up true. that rule... If they had said, you know, if they had done like a more classic like back to the future thing where they're like, hey, just so you know, like if you do this, you're going to change everything. Like fundamentally, it's going to be different. It's all going to be different. And, you know, maybe what he sees at the end is like an idyllic imagined thing. That's fine. I would have lived with that too. But instead, they said, nope, barely going to change a thing. And then they changed everything. So that's my gripe. And I know that's a silly gripe. And I think that these movies might disagree with me that like... I don't think it matters, though. Like, I think that may that's my only argument against me, is I think even more so than in Marvel, these movies, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it doesn't work. It truly doesn't matter. My only issue with it, and the only reason it makes me think of it, is because we marathoned it, A, and B, because they were so explicit in this movie. And they even bring it back up in the later ones. In other movies, like in the next two movies that are canonically following this one, they, they keep referencing Days of Future Past. They say, yeah. well... We changed the course of events so that we could do this, Charles. You who's doing the same thing you've done for the past four movies, Charles. And um, and that's why it bothers me. So that's my only gripe. Days of Future Past is very good. Ellen Page is very good. I wish we had gotten more of her. McAvoy is very, the Rogue very good. Cut. He is good in this movie. Do you know what the Rogue Cut is? Did you ever watch it? I did I not actually it. watch it, but I know what it is. I, I like it's just a basically uh, Anna Paquin was in this movie and then they had to cut her scenes because they just didn't work. And then people were like, where the hell's Rogue? So then they slapped together a $25 Blu-ray and they sold it at Target. And it's red box instead of a blue box. And that's... <laughs> that's it. That's the like, That's it. And summary. I just don't... I've never seen it. So I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I don't know if she contributes in any way, but... Um, she sure is that's in it. it. She's that's got all the... I have to Anna Paquin as Rogue has the kind of you know how all the e girls dye their hair now where like it's like dark and then the front two bits of your hair Wait, are I, like platinum blonde a, or a different color. I have a, That's Rogue. I have an important question. Yes. What what's an e, e girl? Oh God. Sure. Okay. So. <laughs> you know I don't know. So things. this is the this is the natural progression from Visco Girl. So it's oh, the this new is Visco kind girl. of like no 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 it is the oh. next one. Visco Girl <laughs> is it. kind of like young millennial Gen Z cusp. And, like, the average girl of that age. Like, the average sorority girl when we were in college. Like, scrunchies okay. and those bottles and, like, oversized shirts and, you know, the vibe. Okay. And then the the e-girl the e trend is the average Gen Zer on TikTok now. So, very specific kind of, like, fox eye right. makeup, those straight eyebrows, Kendall Jenner vibes, dresses very specific okay. things, like, 70s, okay. 80s clothes, has her hair dyed exactly like Rogue. Um, that's the vibe. Got it. Yeah, got it. So she was an early trendsetter. Very much so. She's the e-girl. Understood. She's the original e-girl. Understood. 
Well, before we leave Days of Future Past, I do feel remiss that we have not mentioned one character and one actor. And he is in Days of Future Past, and he is in X-Men Last Stand. Kelsey Grammer shows back up this as the Beast. so true. For the three seconds. Beast who's a politician. <laughs> yeah, he shows up for three seconds where he's like, hi, Logan, and he walks down the hallway. But for people who haven't seen X-Men 3, freaking Kelsey Grammer's in it, which is so strange. So completely strange, but he's in it. That's it. I just enjoy that Frazier is an X-Men. So, yes, that leads us from uh, Days of Future Past right into X-Men Apocalypse. So, I don't don't know where to take this one. I think what we should first say is that X-Men Apocalypse and its sequel, X-Men Dark Phoenix, are not good movies. And that's not just our opinion. It's the opinion of their Rotten Tomatoes score. And kind of everybody. I don't know if we want to do this on this episode necessarily, but I, I... I legitimately am curious as to why they're so bad. Like, I don't... Here's my here's my confusion. They're not... It's not like a different creative team. Like, Brian Singer's back. It's written by the same folks. It's produced by the same folks. But it's bad. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if what it fundamentally shows is that these movies really were kind of singular. And there's a reason they worked. And the reason they worked was because it was about the conflict between Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. And also there's Hugh Jackman. And and even even the early movies, like even Days of Future Past and First Class, the reason you're into them is because you know that they lead to them? Or if they're just bad on their own. I don't know. But they are bad. They're bad for different reasons, though. We should note that. So Okay, so let's, let's start with give Apocalypse. an overview of yeah, Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. So X-Men Apocalypse is the first movie that follows Days of Future Past. And it is also the next movie in the Cannoli Order because it is the first movie in the new timeline. So to help with this, let's give the dates again. Days of Future Past is the 70s movie, which takes place in 1973. And Apocalypse takes place in 1983 or 85, give or take, somewhere in there. So we're back to 1985, which we've never seen before. We've seen 79, we've seen 99, we've never seen 85. And in this new timeline, uh, Xavier still has his school, and he has found uh, Jean. He's found Jean Grey, thanks to Wolverine telling him to go find her. And uh, Cyclops is there, and lots of the other like original cast members are there. Uh, well, not cast members, but the characters, rather. And that's like half the movie. Half the movie is, you remember all those people you liked before? Here's them as kids. And they I have shared it from Ready Player One is Cyclops now. Welcome. Yes, yes, yes. And, 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 and Sophie Turner have to fall in love. Here's them being forced yes, into Yes, they it. do. And here's Jubilee. And here's just a bunch of characters that are sort of fan favorites that you haven't seen yet. Here's Nightcrawler again. And have a good time. Enjoy. And also Mystique is still here. And that's like one half of the movie. It's strange. Um, but yeah, like, like, you know, again, it's sort of like, we, you know, we love you, we know you all love these characters. So here they are again. And that's fun. And they're even going to go back to Alkali Lake. Swear to God, like, (laughs) we'll do it all again. (laughs) And then the other half of the movie is Oscar Isaac is an ancient god who is the basis of all (laughs) monomyth gods. And he rides with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Not only that, but he's the first ever mutant. It turns out mutation is not a genetic thing. It's the creation of Oscar Isaac God. And Oscar Isaac wakes up because some people chanted his name one time in a basement under a rug in Egypt, and Rose Byrne was there. 
And then Oscar Isaac, God, wakes up and he then turns uh, Magneto for reasons that are baffling. He turns Magneto. He turns Storm, who we have not yet seen, a young Storm. He turns uh, Olivia Munn, Psylocke, who is my favorite part of this movie because her costume is awesome and she's just charismatic. And Angel, again. I have a separate gripe about Angel. We'll get to that. He turns them into the uh, the apocalypse, like the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then he tries to undo the world because the world is bad and it does violence. Oh, yeah, and but we should explain that the way and... he realizes this classic villain uh, motivation that the world is bad and needs to be cleansed is he goes to Storm's house touches his hand yeah. to the TV to a TV and then closes and his, his eyes and yeah and he sees just yeah. the news or like some kind of news montage and he's like oh there's war they're all arguing and fighting that's it we gotta reset the earth it, it's basically like the Thanos argument it's like people are bad and sometimes when they get bad enough you gotta reset stuff and like again an apocalypse is apparently very important in the comics and very famous and blah 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 blah, blah. but something we talked about earlier in this episode the original X-Men films really work well because they all take place in a 10-mile radius of each other. Like, the first movie is in New York, the second film is in a lake in Canada, and the third film is on Alcatraz Island. They don't move from those places. Yeah. This movie, it suddenly just scales everything up. Like, it's the fate of the entire world. Even Days of Future Past, the stakes are... are like, the room. Like, the stakes are basically, can this room of people survive? Like, you know it's for the world, but, like, it feels personal. Please talk about that scene. Please talk about the missiles. It's baffling. Yeah. He takes over Professor X's powers and uses them to convince the people in charge of every nuclear arsenal of every country in the world to just launch it into space and discard it. Like, every country in the world just had its nuclear weapons blasted into the air and tossed aside. And there's also the okay, part where he starts destroying the entire world. And they, Okay, so we're, we're already, I'm already to my first point of confusion, which by the way, I've seen the movie twice. I paid to see it in theaters and now I've seen Me it a second too. time and I hate myself for that. Wait, did we see this movie together? Is that possible? We might have. We actually might have. That sounds very familiar. Anyway, here's my first point of confusion. Isn't he trying to actually nuke him? I don't think he throws him away. I think he wants to no, nuke him. No, I read the Wikipedia thing to make sure of this. Professor X throws him into space. Like then he no, like undoes no, no, it, no, right? No. no. He says, I want it to be the great equalizer because he's afraid that if they have the nuclear weapons and he tries to say, Okay, I'm gonna reset everything, mutants will rule the world, that they'll use it against him. Because he knows that that's what can wipe out all mutants. So he, he why, says, why? we will all be equalized now. I know that that's true, and I cannot defend it because it just still <laughs> makes no sense. Okay. Here's my only issue. Here's my confusion. The, the confusion is not within the plot. The confusion is actually within the, the, the visual devices. A big portion of this movie, this is going to sound very familiar to any of you who have been listening, Jean Grey is starting to discover that she's more powerful than she thinks. And she's starting to kind of have instability win that power. This is going to come up again in a second. Um, part of that is that she has these dreams. And in the dreams, she sees the apocalypse happen. And by the apocalypse, I mean like a nuclear blast. Like, oh. it's very clearly like Armageddon right. nuclear blast 
hears something exploding that is made of nuclear fission material, etc. So that's why when he did it, I was like, ah, this is what they're, this is what she saw. And now they're going to do. No, it turns out I'm wrong. That's just code for the end of the world. <laughs> it's just the, the visual, the stand-in. I don't know. But I will say, I mean, Oscar Isaac is, it's so ridiculous the way he plays this character that it's almost to like the Babadook level of like campy icon. Like, I kind of love him for it. The It's, it's just, it's not necessarily bad. It just has nothing for it like this character has no substance nothing, none and oscar isaac is obviously an actor i personally would die for i'd love him so much and he's, he's a great fantastic actor. yeah one of the greatest talents in the industry right now and he i mean it's again it's it's not that he did anything wrong it's just that he's buried under 40 pounds of prosthetics and makeup and costumes he has basically <laughs> no lines the such a weird choice does make no sense and half of them are in ancient language it's literally just the campiest dialogue so it's not his fault that he had nowhere to go with this but basically his character doesn't exist like this is the problem apocalypse is a really cool character in the comics again i haven't read them or anything but i've read about them and he is he's great and he has like these four horsemen of the apocalypse where he recruits four people with powers throughout all his lifetimes and we know this but it's done in the most vanilla way like they barely did it like they're like okay he's a stand-in for a villain so he could, he's gonna be as generic as possible we're barely gonna realize that the four mutants he he recruits are the horsemen he's he's barely gonna have any mythos he's just gonna kind of be a droopy blue guy and they're fighting yep. him now it's it is a baffling decision like, it's so strange. And again, the stakes are so different. It is so unlike any of the other movies that we'd ever seen, and not in a good way. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. Half of the movie is not about that. Half of the movie is a redo of X2, where Stryker comes in, kidnaps some people, they go back to Alkali Lake... All the kids got to go there. They got to get themselves out of there. And they even meet Wolverine again. Wolverine, right. Here's my first gripe is why the hell is Wolverine there? Didn't we just do the whole thing about the... Anyway, this is the first run-in with the problems with Days of Future Past where even though they just said what their damn story's about, this one includes all the stuff that sometimes happened and sometimes didn't. And it's just... My God, is this a weird movie. Um, We haven't really talked about Michael Fassbender. I really love Michael Fassbender as an actor. And I think he was very good as Magneto. He He's one of those actors that it always feels like he's giving it 100% all the time. Even when the role doesn't deserve it, he's just going for it. And in this movie, this felt like the first one that broke him. Yeah. Like, ha- in the very beginning, he's into it. When they're, they, they kill his wife and daughter because he can't be happy. And, like, he's in it then. And every other time when he's with Oscar Isaac, he looks bored. Like, it just... Because it doesn't make sense. None of he it makes sense for his tired. character. None of it... Ma- yeah, yeah. He just looks tired. He's just, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where the whole movie kind of happens because Apocalypse wants everything to end. So he har- he harnesses Magneto's immense power. And Magneto is tired and annoyed slash the plot needed it. So he acquiesces. And then at the end, obviously, right. he's like, oh, JK, all the other X-Men have convinced me that this is bad. I'm actually against you now. Like, it was just right. the most vanilla, predictable plot. And the whole time, you're just like, but why? Why would he? Why? <laughs> they also bring in the fact that Quicksilver is his son, and that has no impact on anything. And it also never comes back again. It doesn't come up in the next movie. Like, it's not relevant. Even though you would think that would be very important, it's just not. Mystique is in it again, and she's doing some stuff sometimes. 
as you mentioned, Olivia Munn is in it, and I just love her, and I love Psylocke, and I love the color yes. purple so much. So it's it all just great. works for me. She's my favorite part. Her set pieces her are interesting. Her powers are whip. cool. Yeah, it's cool. Quick minor quibble that doesn't really matter, but it is annoying to me as someone who just marathoned it. There are four different characters named Angel in these movies, and they need to figure that out. Like, so we were first introduced to a character named Angel in X3, who is the son of a the main villain, essentially, and he has big wings. And then we were introduced to Zoe Kravitz's character, whose name is Angel, who has fairy wings and is an exotic dancer and then is off-screen murdered in the next movie. And then we meet this version of Angel, who is not the same Angel as the, any of the other two Angels, even though he looks exactly the same and he's a German guy and he disappears in about 10 minutes. And then we have another Angel in, uh, in uh, I think it's Logan or, or even the Wolverine. There's another character named Angel. No, 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 I'm sorry. It's um, Deadpool. It's the name of the gal from the Mandalorian. Uh, her name is Angel, like the, the sort of the henchman. And again, I just... This is one of those examples where maybe if it was like the MCU and it's one big cohesive writing unit, sort of, like maybe they at least talk to each other and they're like, hey, you can't use that. Where already said that? Do they just not have notes? Do they not have like a Word doc where they like Apple F and they're like, ugh, crap, we already used that name. Clearly not. They, I, it, that just drives me, I don't know. It just drives me crazy. Yeah. This is, this is also the movie where two things really stood out to me this is when i say this is the movie i mean this is the point in the marathon where i was like hmm uh <laughs> very specific marathon experience but number one every single freaking x-men movie has to open with narration about the concept of evolution and mutants yeah and mutation. it's always just, like just their some little kind thing, of yeah. weird it's either like a zoom like a drone shot or some kind of like particles cgiing their way yep. onto the screen and it's always just yep. And it's, it's some version of a speech like this said very stoically. It's like, mutants, yep. humans, evolution, mutants. a fundamental next step in the world. But does it always lead to good? Sometimes the <laughs> next step can be a negative step or something like that. Like, it sounds like a segment always. of some weird museum from the 60s. And they were like, here's the big new experience. <laughs> like, and the opening an audio of uh, clip. Neil deGrasse's Yeah, uh, it's exactly. Cosmos. That's yeah. what it sounds like. Anyway, which is fine. It's just, this is the movie where I was like, do you really need it in this one? Like every single one you have to open with that. And and they always no, will adapt the speech to be about the thing. You know, like if it's a if it's a Dark Phoenix movie, then they'll be like, does mutation always lead to good? Sometimes it can be dark. And if it's an apocalypse movie, they'll be like, you know what? Mutation has been going on since the beginning of time. If it's a normal X-Men movie, then they'll be like mutants. The next step. How will they be treated? And yep. it's like, you don't have to do this no, every I'm, time, dude. We know I, what mutation is. I actually think that's a great segue into Dark Phoenix because of this. I completely agree with you. I'm I'm very tired of them using that. Not because it wasn't cool in the originals, but because if Days of Future Past was meant to divorce us from the original movies and say, we can now enjoy our own set of movies, stop using the stuff from the original movies. Like, if that's true then stop doing it, including stop using the opening narration, stop putting Hugh Jackman in the main title movies because it messes everything up, stop using the same plot lines. And that brings us to Dark Phoenix, which is an explicit remake of The Last Stand, sort of. Yeah. I, 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 just stop doing it. Like, if that, was your, if that was your whole intent, we need to be unburdened 
from the original franchise because it was too popular and that doesn't allow us to kind of move within our own space. Totally understand. Have at it. And then they kept coming back to the well. They need a clean breakup. And they didn't have a clean breakup. Not at all. Oh, it's exhausting. Dark Phoenix. Okay, so Dark Phoenix. It's not a good movie. It's the worst of the lot. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kick it off with the one with my favorite thing about this movie because I think we're just gonna go down from here. So Hans Zimmer does the score for this movie, and I think it just rules. Even from the moment I watched this movie in the theaters, I was like, well, this isn't a great movie, but every time the Phoenix is on screen, there's a this iconic whistly theme yeah. that plays, and it's yeah. great. And that's it. I yeah, I honestly don't have that much to say about this movie. It's exhaustingly bad. Um I actually mentioned this a little bit on my social media that I do think I want to do a little deeper of an exploration as to why it's bad. Maybe that can be a separate episode or something else, but I just don't have the energy yeah, for it. Yeah, maybe we'll it. do it's, it in the next one because I've, I've got I, I thoughts just, too. It, it's, its fundamental problem is that it has the same problems as the original movie that it's remaking. So I, I like we already talked about it. A lot of what's wrong with this is what was wrong with The Last Stand is what's wrong with this movie. And it's just too... It, it's too obsessed with a story that needed a breath of air and it needed not to be told again. And it was so intent on doing it all again that all characterizations go out the window. And I think that is its biggest crime. Yeah. Every characterization that you know of is suddenly gone. I Honestly, this is a crazy statement. I think the best person in this movie is Ty Sheridan. He does the best job of just staying as Cyclops. He doesn't change his character. He's actually pretty close to James Marsden in this movie. He does a pretty good job. Everyone else loses it. Like, I don't know what's happening with Magneto in this movie. He just completely changes everything and has no bearing on anything. Yeah. Um, Professor X is a villain in this like movie. a professional seatbelt remover. There's nothing else that yeah, he does. Yeah, Quicksilver is in there for a game, and he disappears halfway through the movie. Oh, he has a great scene in Apocalypse, by the way. They just basically tried to redo the, the, the yeah. slow-mo thing, and it kind of worked. It was fantastic. It and did. then in this movie, it's, it's nothing. It's not as good in this one. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. This movie just... And this is this is the single biggest offender of the timeline problem. It... it like, fund, like, let's pretend this matters. Spoiler alert. She's dead at the end of this movie. Sort of. Just like she was at the last one. How in the hell is she back as... As Dutch actress uh, 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 Jean Grey in the end of Days of Future Past, how is she back? How does that happen? She because we just saw that Eric. not happen. She just did. <sighs> I swear. I don't just... know. I just I don't know how to stress to them. Like if I could just have one phone call with the execs, I just need them to know the same way that I need the people who keep making Spider-Man movies where Uncle Ben has to keep dying that you don't have to do the Dark Phoenix thing anymore. Like y'all did you it. Shouldn't. I know that it's the big thing in the comics, but please stop. Please. They've been around since I'm the 60s. I'm begging you. Yeah. Plenty of stories There's to tell. There's so Plenty. much more. And the X-Men is the most we can talk about this later, but it's the most well-fleshed-out sort of sub-universe of Marvel. Like, there's just yes. so much going on there. It's basically its own universe. There is so many characters, and they have so much, and there's just so many cool storylines to draw on that are not one more rehashing of Dark Phoenix. Please just yep. retire that. It's so tired, and it was from before this movie came out. So, In <sighs> the spirit of being optimistic... The only parts of this movie I really did enjoy, like legitimately, is when Sophie Turner and Michael Fassbender got to go up against each other. Yeah, that because was that fun. didn't that didn't happen in any of the other ones, and uh, they, they 
they, I don't know, they, they play off of each other very well in this movie. Like they do go head to head and she actually holds her own against a much older actor and, and someone who's kind of venerated at this point. And it's just interesting to see her as a still, you know, younger actress, Sophie Turner kind of going against him and then even their characters. It is a really interesting sort of matchup. It, it feels very much like a, you know, kind of like a, it's like, so it's like Civil War. Like you're excited to see yeah. Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans go head to head. You want to see Jean Grey and Magneto go head to head. And that's, that's it. That's the only thing I'll say. I don't even, that's <sighs> it. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, the next movie is Deadpool, which is yes. very different. <laughs> I don't really know what to say about Deadpool because that has got to be the single most popular one of this entire list for our yeah, generation. I'm sure everyone's Everyone saw Deadpool. Seen it. You've all seen it. You all know it. It's very funny. It's very self-aware. It came from a short film that was very likely leaked by Ryan Reynolds uh, in an effort to basically germ up enough goodwill to make this movie happen. And it did. Yeah. I, I just don't know what to say about it. It's just a good movie. It is a good, funny, small, pretty short movie. It does its job perfectly. It's very self-aware. The only gripe that I would say that I have is that it utterly destroyed the concept of like rated R movies for, for, for studios. Like everyone now is trying to do their own Deadpool thing. Oh God. And you just don't need to. It's very singular. Yeah. Yeah. On the, and on the flip side of that, everyone is trying to call every movie that has any amount of fourth wall breaking a Deadpool. So that's just Oh God. Exhausting. We talked about this in the Birds of Prey episode. Yeah. Harley Quinn is not DC's Deadpool. They're different concepts. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know. I hope it doesn't sound like we don't like it. It's just like you've all seen it and it is a very good movie. There's nothing to explore, really. It's just fun. As good as ever. Super fun action. Great characters. And Ryan Reynolds was born to play this role. And it holds up. It's one of those ones where I don't think you could ever remake it. Like it legitimately no. is Ryan Reynolds. It is, it, you cannot divorce the character. It's, I mean, he, he references being Ryan Reynolds, so it's impossible. You can't, yeah. you just can't do it. So that leads us to Logan, which ironically, I think almost suffers from the same problem. Like, I feel like everyone talked about Logan. I don't have a whole lot to say about Logan other than if, if I have to pick one, I would legitimately say you got to go watch Logan. I mean, it's a, if, if you don't like superheroes and if you've been listening to this for, as long as it is, however long it will be. And you're like, wow, they really love this, but I hate superheroes. That's fine. But I promise this movie is a lot more about the deep, deep pain that comes with taking care of an elderly parent when they begin to lose their mind while you are losing your sense of health and self. Like, that is what the movie is about. It also happens to feature superheroes. Yeah. Yeah, it's just something else. It is a crazy good movie. It really is. It it, it completely changed... The concept of what these movies could be. It was, I mean, it was Oscar talked about, yeah, like it was best, considered. No, no, no. As, it as got, a, it got a, uh, best adapted screenplay nom. That's right. That's right. Which is huge. That's huge. Like, I can't describe how big that is. And, you know, it's not like other movies haven't done it, but it's just, yeah, it was very singular. And I think it was a wonderful passing of the torch to Daphne Keene, I believe is her name. Mm, yes. Um, it, it is a wonderful passing. And, and I really do think, like, aside from everything else, Logan is a wonderful goodbye to Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman. Like it is a really, yeah, I think the best way I, I could describe it while watching it was like Days of Future Past said goodbye to the franchise. Logan said goodbye to the two main characters. Like it's always been about these two. And it does such a good job of saying goodbye to a person that has been around, you know, and just like even personally. I have seen Hugh Jackman. This was his big film debut, by the way, was X-Men, the original. He has been a presence in my life at that time for 17 straight years. 
And he was in 12 movies. No, he was in what? 11 of them, 10 of them by that point. Like Mm -hmm. it's just, he was, he was always present and it's a, it was a very touching way to sort of say goodbye to both of them. So, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. He holds the Guinness world record for having the longest career as a live action superhero. He's played yep. Wolverine in so many movies that nobody's played a single superhero character in more movies than he has. I don't think you can separate it. I, I'm sure we'll talk about this in our next episode um, of sort of like what's next. But I just want to sort of say it now and prelude it. If and when the MCU does feature the X-Men, I do think it will be a massive mistake to feature Wolverine. The only way they can do it is if they use... Daphne Keene, or they, they do a new yeah. version, right? Like they use what I believe her, her name is in the comics is Honey Badger is Daphne Keene's character or the current Wolverine, I believe is, is X-23 is his clone. And it is a, a woman. I don't remember. I don't know her name, like her actual uh, human name, but um, Wolverine, if that's what they do have at it. But I think if they try to do Logan again, like they tried to do that guy, I think it's a huge mistake. I don't think you can do it. Hugh Jackman is far too... He is that role. They're, they can't be divorced. So Yeah. No, but this movie seriously makes lists of the greatest superhero movies ever made. And it's um, unbelievably good. Good Western. Yeah, it's a great Western. <laughs> Real also, good Western. I feel like... The, okay, here's the thing. The Wolverine solo film trilogy has the greatest exponential upward sloping momentum I've ever seen of any Ooh, trilogy. I like it. I like this theory. Yeah. It is one horribly bad movie, one surprisingly (laughs) great movie, and then one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. Like, what a trilogy. A trilogy to kill for. I like it. Also, there's a... I mean, this movie is tonally very dark, so what I'm about to say will make a lot of sense, but there's a version of this movie that's popularly watched online, which is just the whole thing in black and white. Like, this is a... It's a, it's a cut that they oh, officially released. It's not just, oh, some mm. fan changed the effects. It's a... It's the, the noir cut. Like, it's, it's a thing. That. We should look it up. And I could not recommend it more. Number one, because it's a Western and it's a great movie and it's, yeah, it's yeah. gritty and it uh, fits, but also because this movie is beautifully directed in that things like the way light falls on people's faces and what that reveals comes out a lot more in black and white and it kind of actually is pretty important it's it's surprising how much you notice that kind of stuff when you are in black and white so if you're watching this movie slash if you've seen it and are just looking for something new to do on the rewatch definitely just look up the noir cut i love it interesting okay it's a good rec good rec it's a great movie i'm actually gonna say a quick criticism of this which is that it is almost too depressing to the point where i don't think that matters that's fine you can make a depressing movie but i almost wish that it was a standalone movie i know that it has to be tied into the others and it has to be it has to close out the trilogy but the level of depression i have over how sad this movie is every time i see it it's really sad it is so damn dark that everything is dark about it like the fact that like old 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 man charles xavier who is a telepath whenever he has his dementia seizures he's basically sending every it's classified as a weapon of mass destruction like he's creating he's like the whole world starts shaking everyone almost dies like things go really bad and he's killed a bunch of people with that like it is that dark of characters that we know and i kind of almost wish that so this comes from a a comic book arc called old man logan where he is kind of this guy you know what it is so his life is just so dark and gory and horrifying and on one hand i kind of hate that it it ruins the other 
movies for me a little. But on uh, on one hand, it is great because if you really think about the character arc of the Wolverine, this guy has lived for hundreds of years and yep. he has only ever seen constant horror, constant exploitation, yep. constant gore, constant death. And he's been and a horror. soldier since the age of eight or whatever. Yeah, this man has literally yeah. seen every war and been in it. Yep. And I think that the R rating of this movie and seeing the darkness and the gore and all of that stuff and the post-apocalyptic vibe and just, just everything that happens in this movie is actually the perfect way to see through his eyes, like to see his perspective. Yep. It's just... It's done really well. Yeah, and Daphne Keene is perfect. She's so good. Oh my God, is she good? Like she's, oh man, I really wish she would have got a nomination for something somewhere because she's, her animalistic nature in this movie is something to behold. She's, her snarls and she has these head movements that are just, she also does her own God, stunts. they're good. Really? She I has a stunt that. double, but she does, she's a gymnast and she does a lot of the sure. like flips and stuff. The other thing I would say that I really like about this movie is it is very self-aware about its own legacy. Uh, sorry, it feels like Hugh Jackman is, where a lot of this movie, the violence in this movie is is upscaled. It's not more violent than some of the others. It's just more real. It feels more horrifying, not only to him, but to you as the audience. And a little bit of a spoiler here, but one of the villains in the movie is him, his younger self, as a basically a clone of himself. And they de-age him so that it looks just like he did in the year 2000. And it's very interesting because it definitely feels like there's some reckoning of you know what have i contributed like what is the legacy of this character like i'm saying goodbye now i I, hugh jackman i'm saying goodbye and what is the legacy of this character like i've done this for 10 films and so far it has been nothing but violence and i have been a violent killer in all of them and what is the final what is my mark going to be what am i going to make this character be now as i say goodbye and it's uh, there's just a beauty in that it's it's a really interesting i'm not really a good person to do things like auteur theory or or actor theory for movies but it definitely feels like something that i would love to learn a little more about of like how does the actor really shape what that movie becomes yeah and the movie, the, the best thing it does really, and this is probably owed to the R rating a lot, but it kind of just lets you reach all the conclusions by yourself. Like they don't tell you anything. This movie is just kind of like, no, hey, you know, what's happening on screen is happening. And you just kind of figure it all out. You're just like, oh, you know, when all these children see him, they're seeing a hero, but you have to figure that out. You have to understand like how you exactly how they contrast the the children's innocence with all the brutality. And the whole thing is just done really well where they leave you to understand all of that. And they just don't spoon feed it to you at all. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. Well, our final movie leads very strangely right out of Logan, <laughs> which is Deadpool 2, which opens up uh, with him activating a um, music box sort of a thing of <laughs> Wolverine's dying body, uh, which is great. Deadpool 2. I don't know who saw this. Like, I don't, know, I don't know if a lot of people saw this or not, to be honest. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think my general takeaway of this movie is that it is a funnier film than the first one, which is pretty rare. I think it is not quite as tight as the original, um, but I do think it is a funnier movie, and that is a, a sort of a fascinating thing. Like, it just doesn't... I feel like that's rare. You know what I mean? Like, as, in, as far as comedies go, I expect the quality to go down. And here, it really doesn't. It's it's a very good movie, and it has its own little, very sweet sort of story to tell, and it 
feels like it's kind of an exit and a kind of goodbye, which is appropriate since it's the final movie in our cannoli order and the final X-Men film since it looks like New Mutants is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it very much feels like sort of a goodbye to it all because it does feel like it kind of reckons with some of its own legacy and its own ideas of like, what should the X-Men be and who can be in it and where do we go from here? And it's, uh, it is a very ridiculous little movie, but uh, I think very fun. And it has one of the best little mild sequences ever where they do the team up. I think it's one of my mm-hmm. favorite things with Peter, one of the best characters in all of X-Men. Um, and uh, I'm going to nominate my favorite superpower in all of X-Men. This will be a, a quick game we play, I guess. I'm nominating my favorite superpower as that of the character of Domino in this movie. Uh, Domino, who is played by Zazie Beetz, who is wonderful here. And you should see her here and not in the film The Joker. Um, and her power is uh, probability manipulation. Uh, but she, it's not like she's even in control of it. Essentially what that means is she's just really lucky. And everything works out for her. <laughs> like no matter what. It's just like it works out. So if she steps off the edge of a building, it's fine. Because she knows at the bottom of it, there will definitely be a trampoline. Like... It all works out, and it is such a fun and unique way to show a power on screen. It's very cinematic, and it's very fun. I love that. Yeah. It's also got, this movie's got what I consider some of the greatest mainstream LGBT representation. So there's there's a straight-up lesbian relationship in this movie, which is great. Here's why I love it. I think that so many movies, so many movies are just so proud these days of being like, we have a gay character in this movie. We're awesome. And then you watch it and it's like one guy who's like, my boyfriend said hi to me this morning and then it's never mentioned again. Right. And then in this movie, it's kind of like the opposite where they're just like, it's never really a big deal, but these two women are dating and they just are and they're a couple and it's that's that's it. Right. I kind of just love that. I enjoyed it. And also the woman who plays... Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Thank you. I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> she is, she's actually queer. So it's just cool. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, these movies, both of them are, are very, um, I think they come across as being like edgelord funny, but they're really not. Like, they're very openly loving of people and of like, you know, what, what the movie would call any sense of like alternative lifestyle, alternative here meaning literally anything but the straight white man who is literally the villain of the first movie. Like just the epitome of that idea. It 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 just kind of loves that in its entirety, represented even by Deadpool and his strangeness and his unknown fluid sexuality and his crazy lifestyle, meaning like he lives in squalor, self-selected, and it's just, uh, it's a very interesting little franchise. It comes off as one thing, and it is definitely something else. It's just good. Uh, I forgot that we should say Josh Brolin is in that movie as Cable. Yes. A time-traveling villain. Plays famously. And he's sort of like an anti-hero. But what's funny is they do, they, he calls him Thanos in this movie at least once. Yeah. But it's just sort of funny <laughs> to see him in this because it does feel like such small time considering he was Thanos. Like, it's such a strange... I don't know, it's just, it's very funny. Yeah. So, that is the cannoli order. And that's the end of 26 hours of movies that we watched. 26 hours. Yep. Uh, The entirety of two decades worth of pop culture, the year 2000 until Dark Phoenix, which came out in 2019. So, I guess 19 years, technically. Um, Yeah. 
it's uh it has been an interesting ride so next episode we're gonna dive a little more into like what is this series actually trying to say if anything do they have any themes what do celebrities know do they know anything let's find out um and just kind of like look at it a little more uh because again it's a weird series and we have literally barely touched on like what it's actually about if anything and the individual movies and what they're actually about and like where it falls apart and where it doesn't and it's 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 an interesting ride so i think that'll be fun we're excited any closing thoughts for us shalila this was fun as i was instagram posting about my marathon experience a lot of you said that you'd started doing it too and i got a lot of requests for the order and how it oh, was really? happening and that's all kinds awesome. of inspirational stuff so yeah shout out to all of you guys i hope oh, i also so inspired you to endanger your nice. eyesight over 26 hours it's just what a ride right so yeah just want to shout you guys out thank you that's great well thanks for joining those people who did and make sure to check back for our second episode in our two-part x-menathon series and we will dive even deeper into what this very strange little series is all about we are as always are you still watching is on patreon at patreon slash a y s w uh, we are also on Twitter at AYSWPod. Correct. Oh, hell yeah. I got it in one. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on Stitcher and lots of other ones that I don't know. Pocket Cast and Overcast. There you go. Uh, anywhere the you listen to podcasts, we're there. So if you feel like supporting us and uh, want to support sort of the podcast we're doing and, and we're always coming up with different ideas and especially during the quarantine trying to kind of give you guys something to listen to to get you through the day uh please feel free to do that uh, either just by listening or reviewing or subscribing or giving to our patreon or whatever even just letting us know you're listening is uh very very welcome yeah tweet us Uh, because otherwise we watch 26 hour marathons for nothing you know yeah, and you wouldn't want that to happen, would you? No, you need to validate us. Uh, you can find us both on Twitter. I am at more Eric Morales. And I am at OKShalila. And this has been uh, part one of our X-Menathon series. And uh, have a good night, everybody. And we'll see you next time.